Bruce Lawn. The infamous Brenda, who has a lot of people upset. The conservative Christians won't talk to her. She's too, she's too Christian for the world. And she's here with us, ladies and gentlemen. So without no further ado, um, I'm super excited to be here with you. Uh, Brenda, thank you for being here. Uh, you are, you've been beyond gracious in our uh, private conversations and just been super cool. And so I'm very thankful. A lot of people uh, have asked for this conversation. Um, and, and, and I think uh, I, I said this to you in the message, I, you know, with clarity, there, there comes confidence. And so there may be some things that I'm not quite sure about some of your views or maybe I've uh, been a part of misrepresenting them in my interview with um, uh, Paul and Morgan, perhaps uh, there's certain things that maybe you feel misrepresented by. And so we're just going to have some 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 cool conversation, clear the air uh, and and figure out uh, some of the stuff we agree on. So for the folks that don't know you, if you could just do us a solid, introduce yourself, tell us where you're from. Folks in the chat, let us know how the levels sound. Um, and yeah, let's let's jump into it. Thank you for having me. Hi, beautiful people. My name is Brenda Davies. I'm of the channel God is Gray, where I advocate for sex positive, LGBTQ affirming, science believing faith. Um, I did not see your DM until recently. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to go to Twitter route to get Brenda's attention, guys. <laughs> There's a good route just because I hate Twitter and I'm never on there. So when I see someone at me, I read it because I have like no activity on there. <laughs> so I saw you and you were like, I thought you were being kind of accusatory of like, uh, progressives won't talk to me or something. And I was like, no, I'm dying to talk to people yes. all the time. People don't ever want to talk to me. That's so funny. We share that in common. I really haven't been able to get any, I have a lot of progressive, progressive friends. Again, we're going to even figure out what that even means, but I got a lot of progressive friends in my personal life that won't, that hold some wild views in my opinion. Um, but won't come on and have any of the conversations about their world, their, their views with regards to the literal resurrection or, um, women's rights and and so on and so forth so i'm super happy that you're you're willing to have this conversation that's that's fantastic so um your youtube channel is dope i've watched it i've 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 you you got some quotes that i i think are actually very helpful uh Mm -hmm. i think some things that we agree on i love 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 your heart for the innocence project um Mm -hmm. i think the work that you've done with them the donations you've made to them if you guys don't know what the innocence project is i think it's super dope and i think that is somewhere that we definitely align on um can you tell the people what the innocence project is and just some of some of the contribution that you and community your, your community has been able to make to the innocence project yeah i would um okay so basically I was definitely one of those sleeping white girls. I grew up right outside of Philadelphia in New Jersey. I was on the right side of the track, so to speak. Like, And my dad was um, a teacher in Philly. So he had all 100% Black, Puerto Rican, um, I think a couple Filipino students mm-hmm. and nothing else, no mm. white kids. And it never occurred to me that he would drive 20 minutes to work and not send his kids to the actual school that he was teaching at. Mm. They had metal detectors in class. Like they had, you know, a lack of books, lack of supplies, all that kind of stuff. So I was privy to the disparity of privilege Mm -hmm. that I had versus his students. Mm. But at the same time, I was given the really strong narrative that a lot of us, 
white privileged people have, which is that, you know, these people, quote unquote, are at fault in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, they are living off the welfare state. Well, they just choose crime. Well, they refuse to get themselves out of trouble or stop dealing drugs. And this, like the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and I don't mean the organization, I mean it as like the monolith of the whole movement and mm-hmm. whatever that encapsulates. Um, I was struck by that so hard and it broke my heart in the very beginning when I started learning about police brutality obviously I knew about um what's the infamous LA one Rodney King Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but at the same time like I didn't understand the nuance of it until more and more of these cases started coming out right so I would say in 2020 this wave of Black Lives Matter which was so profound and powerful was really when people started paying attention and I was so excited and happy to pay attention. I was grateful to like bow down and listen Mm -hmm. and it was heated and wild, but I woke up. Like Mm -hmm. that's why they use the term woke because Mm -hmm. I was sleeping and then I became awake. Mm -hmm. I I started understanding the prison industrial complex and all of these complicated ideas about the white supremacy that our nation is built upon and and systemic racism those were things that i started to grasp and um in that i saw the elijah mclean video Mm -hmm. which at the time only had like a couple hundred views his mom had a gofundme page that hadn't even met its seven thousand dollar ass and I took to task like my audience to try to get that story out. Mm. I don't know which flap of the butterfly wings got it out, but someone got it out and Mm. now it's out. And um, I'm, I was just grateful to bring my audience to be a part of that and, and to just wake up as many people as I could. And then another thing that came into my mind at that time was the innocence project Mm -hmm. and learning about how much DNA isn't tested. A lot Mm -hmm. of people Rotting on, I don't want to say rotting on death row because a lot of those people are thriving on death row. A lot of those people are really like educating themselves and, and being good stewards of love and doing such beautiful, profound work in the prison system. Um, like the, the man they just killed and now I'm like, my name is escaping or his name is escaping me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's this guy, Purvis Payne, who has... Uh, intellectual disabilities, and he's on death row for a crime that he did not commit. There's untested DNA evidence. Gosh. So he, thank God, his, um, you know, it got put off, so he wasn't put to death. He was supposed to die on December 3rd or December 4th. Yeah. So the Innocence Project was able to advocate for him and give him more time, that stay of execution. So, yeah, all of that to say I woke up in this wave of Black Lives Matter. And it's been such an honor to be a part of it in whatever way that I could. And it's been an honor to have a platform where I can try my best to educate people as I learn and grow because my ignorance was profound, it was real, and I'm so happy, you know, to not be sleeping on it anymore. Yeah, that's good. And I have a whole series that I did immediately after the George Floyd situation. And I've, you know, countlessly talked about uh, social injustice on this channel and, and how uh, hypocritical that many uh, 
you know, conservative or fundamental Christians can be in selecting which injustices they want to speak out against. So I think that's something that me and you probably, uh, you know, exhibit an equal amount of frustration in certain Christian communities that, um, that do that. And so, yeah, I, I love that. And I've obviously I've seen their uh, episode with Joe Rogan and that and just just the amount of cases that, you know, the DNA isn't tested and how wild some of that stuff is. And even how uh, Kamala Harris suppressed certain DNA testing in certain cases. And that was exposed on a Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, which was why I wasn't a fan of that ticket specifically, um, not to diverge into politics, but um, that was really wild. Like that was really wild. So, um Thank you for sharing that. And I love, again, I love the work that you've doing, done there. I love how you've unified your audience and actually like moved the needle in providing resources to a very dope organization. So kudos to you for that. Um, let's talk about purity culture. All right. Cause, cause you have some very strong views, uh, about purity culture. So in 2004, I started dating my then wife, well, my now wife back then. We started dating. We went to the same high school. We did not date in high school uh, after she graduated. Um, I did this like year fast where I didn't date. And then I, you know, a year after I graduated and she graduated, we started dating. And there was this popular book. You may have heard of it, Brenda. It was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Right. And I remember doing a message with my then girlfriend. We had a, a I did an open mic ministry. Uh, called the vessel and we would do open mics and do bible studies and i remember me and her were dating a couple months and like we like tag team this message about how that book was utter nonsense and how ridiculous it was right because she was in a southern baptist church which kind of leaned more fundamentalist i was at a church that was uh leaned more i don't know charismatic right um some some yeah lean more charismatic so we were doing like art and music and all this kind of stuff and <laughs> and we did this whole thing about how like how this book was utterly nonsense and not helpful and we recommended boundaries in dating which uh, helped us tremendously when we were dating and it was uh by the boundary from the boundary series i can't remember his name dr chaplin i think his name is um and there's a whole series on boundaries and relationships and he did it boundaries and dating as a response to i kiss dating goodbye which was extremely helpful it took a more psychological approach to dating and emotional vulnerability and what boundaries shouldn't be crossed and it was it was really helpful for us and then uh the author of that book recently a couple years ago pretty much came out and was like Ah, I'm not a Christian anymore. I was tripping when I wrote that book. I, re- I denounced all of it, right? And so I've seen some of the negative sides of uh, just the stuff pushed by purity culture. And I've spoken out against a purity culture to an extent. Um, it seems like you've had some rather negative experiences with, with purity culture. Um, can you just kind of share some of that and just kind of your overall like experience with it and, and, and how you view it now? Because you, we probably view this a little different, but I, w- I do really want to kind of understand your framework a bit. Yeah, sure. Um, purity culture, modesty culture, rape culture, all go hand in hand the way that I see it. Okay. So, for example, I think a lot of people misunderstand me because they think that I'm throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So, oh, you don't want to be pure. You don't want to save yourself from marriage. So then you're just full on doing whatever you want. And that's definitely a misconception that a lot of people have about progressives. But in reality, 
being a progressive Christian, which by the way, can I just start by saying there was not terminology for that. I was always calling this my prodigal son journey. And when I started, (laughs) that was like my discovery, my like just deconstructing and like taking all these concepts and figuring out what I actually believed. Mm -hmm. That was just my prodigal son journey. And it wasn't until I started God is Gray and was probably doing it for about six months to a year Mm -hmm. that I even learned the term progressive Christian or deconstructing, reconstructing. So like, it's funny to watch so many churches now speak out against this thing because there's a term for it finally. Like we were just pebbles and Jezebels before. (laughs) (laughs) When I was young, the term, when I was around the same time, the term was emergent. That's what they called it, emergent. And And then if you were like, if you colored within the lines of orthodoxy, you were emerging. You were you were cool enough to be engaged in culture, and you, you <laughs> but you still you know you still colored within the lines of of, of what we would call historical Christianity. Uh, sorry, not to divert, but you just mentioned you know progressive Christianity. Can you define what pro- progressive Christianity is? Because when we say, when, from my understanding, we're not talking about progressive politics, though they do go hand in hand, and that's kind of. Um, Phil Vischer did a video that was really good, and it was talking about, you know, why black Christians vote more progressive and white Christians vote more conservative. And he said it's just honestly the way we look back at history where a lot of white evangelicals will look back and say, yeah, we want to keep things the way they were. It's been great. And people of color will look back and say, ah, it wasn't so good. We need to progress and move past some of these things, right? So it's it's how you view history. That's that's a that 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 is a a, a political ideology, but progressive Christianity. Can you tap on that? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions on what it means. Maybe I was misinformed. So from the the YouTube face of progressive Christianity, who's <laughs> been great, because everybody's like, get God is gray on when we touched on it. Can you just help us understand how you would define progressive Christianity? And we'll come back to purity culture. The funny thing about it is it's it's not this succinct thing that people want it to be. Like the thing that drives mm-hmm. me so wild about um, purveyors of evangelicalism, you know, someone like, I know Ben Shapiro is an evangelical, but conservative voices like yeah. himself, like Ali B. Stuckey, um, like Paula Morgan, who you just had on, I feel like they just have such a, a commitment to not only, it's not even a commitment to misunderstand, it's like a commitment to dig their heels in and say that they're understanding something, that they're not making any effort to understand, okay. in my opinion. So the funny thing about it is like, I called out Bethel Church for having like their tax exempt status mm-hmm. and then still um, promoting Donald Trump very openly, mm-hmm. not only like, on their social media, but I believe on platform to an extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And someone clapped back and was like, well, you progressives all just try to make us vote for, you know, the progressive candidates. And I'm like, yeah, but we don't have a church. We don't have a space. Mm. I'm not tax exempt. I would let, like, can I qualify for that status? Because I'm down. <laughs> but like, we don't have a space. We don't mm-hmm. have a home of worship right now. Our home is especially in 2020 online on our inner circles. It's the conversations and prayer groups that I have with my intimate circles of believers that I trust in, that I trust my heart with, mm-hmm. which is something that I was hard pressed to find in evangelicalism because of the things we're going to get into these things that did hurt me. And people do have a good point when they say, Oh, progressives are just a bunch of people that got hurt by church. So they're turning away from it and they're trying to 
fit God into this thing that they want it to be. But it's, yes, based on hurt, but it's not only that, it's like a really profound betrayal. Mm. And if I could go back to, to like the idea of systemic racism, like Mm -hmm. there are certain profound betrayals that I have found in my research. Like, Mm. why did you all tell me that Christopher Columbus was a hero? Mm. Those are the kind of like rewritten history moments that are not only in our American history, but also coincide with our church history. Yeah. And just learning about the way women rose up at different times are all of these majestic, incredible, powerful, forceful, beautiful, valiant women in the Bible mm-hmm. who I never once heard of from platform. I heard a million times about like the weak, submissive ones that needed to make a baby like Sarah. And I never heard about the badass, powerful ones. And I was just feeling that betrayal. I'm like, You've never heard know? messages about like Ruth and, and sorry, could you drop, but like Ruth or Esther. I grew up hearing a lot of stuff about Ruth and Esther and Mary, right? And the first women being, you know, the, the women being the first ones to see Jesus bodily resurrected. I, I don't, maybe our experience was, was, was different. Well, we can definitely have different experiences, but even in those narratives, they were always given in this like submissive way. You know, obviously Mary's a virgin, so prop up your virginity as an important character trait. Or Sarah was faithful and she was strong, but what she wanted was a baby, another like feminine wifey kind of thing. I didn't hear about women really tearing things down. I didn't hear about women uh, supporting Jesus and his ministry financially. Like men were supposed to be the breadwinners. Like, Mm. I don't know about your experience, but my evangelical church taught this very 1950s style (laughs) gender role, like woman in the kitchen making her man dinner. And then you read the Bible. And again, like I'm saying, it was like a betrayal to me. Why didn't y'all tell me about that? Yeah. And also, why didn't you tell me about these dirty verses about slavery and, yeah. you know, and and our history of not allowing interracial marriage until 1967 or even the colonization, how it wasn't great news that we came and colonized these places and raped and pillaged people that were doing their own thing and doing it beautifully and being spiritual in their own regard. Like we are not. I don't, I'm not America first and I'm not Christian first. I am a Christian, but I would never disrespect anyone else for what they believe. And I would never prop up my faith as something that's better or superior to mm. what the Native Americans had going on before we destroyed what was happening there. So I don't know. Is that answering what you're asking? Yeah. Um, so in terms of progressive Christianity, it it seems like what you're saying is, hey, there's no unified movement. It's a very broad spectrum of people. And in the way I've heard heard it described from from my friends, again, that are progressives, right, is that it very much so does fall. And I don't know if you reject her definition of this, but Elisa Childress, she had a... into progressive service one time and is now like well she was a part of a progressive church she she to to be fair yeah she was a part of a progressive church that she went into a bible study with the pastor who flat out said i'm an optimistic agnostic and and then in there they literally deconstructed everything and then they you know years later officially came out as a a progressive church she had a really interesting conversation with lisa gunger and 
in, in in terms of like her and again maybe this is a caricature so you you help me understand her definition is hey um the closed-handed doctrines of the faith right the the things that like within all of history church history scripture first corinthians 15 jesus literally lived jesus literally um uh, you know, perform miracles. He he died for our sins, as the scriptures testified, and then he rose from the grave, and then he appeared to people literally, physically, in bodily form. Appeared to people. He then went on to, uh, and then Paul even goes on to write and says, "Hey, if if Jesus didn't rise, this whole thing is a farce. Like this whole thing is a joke. We are to be the most pitied, right? So to me, foundational Christianity." has to start with the literal resurrection. My experience, and even Lisa Gunger on that conversation with Alicia Childress, was like, ah, did Jesus really rise? Ah, I don't know. Ah, right? And that to me is like, whoa. Like Now it just becomes metaphorical and, and, and what it makes you feel like and, and no, um, no view of the claims of history to say, hey, no, 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 Jesus was a real person. There was a, this moment in history where something happened and then there's a good amount of claims by multiple people that he literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead and there is a resurrection of the dead coming. Um, the, the way it's presented is that doctrine is off the table. Does it really matter? So you said you believe in the literal resurrection. It, it, so it, it, would you say you're divergent in your view, uh, from other progressives in that or the, mo- the most of your progressive friends believe in the bodily literal resurrection of Jesus? Well, that's interesting because now that you're saying all of that, I'm realizing I went off in this tangent about the the lies that I was told Mm -hmm. or the misrepresentations I was given in church. Mm -hmm. Because for me, the experience of the prodigal son journey, which Mm -hmm. is how I'll refer to it because that's what I was calling it at the time, Mm -hmm. was about deconstructing the fables that I've been told that were not real. And then also aligning that with my spiritual self and my sexual self and all of these other things that had been convoluted in the black and whites of evangelicalism. This is the reason I call my channel goddess gray, Mm -hmm. which by the way, it was a very um, profound moment. I was sitting down like the Holy spirit was all throughout my body. And that name came to me and I bucked it because I was like, no God, they're not going to understand. Everyone is going to demolish me for calling myself. God is gray. But it was just the title of it. And the reason is... It's a brilliant title, by the way. It's a play on God is great. You view a lot of black and white issues as great. It's it's kind of, from a marketing standpoint, (laughs) kudos to you. That's pretty genius. Well, it's like, there you go. (laughs) It really just came to me right away. But um, And I wanted to soften the blow, but it was just like, no, this is what it is. And the reason is because I had found that all of these evangelical experiences, Baptist experiences, et cetera, were about black and whites. Like you have a list of sexual sins and you have a list of things that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. And like, I am not a person that runs through life that way. Anyway, I'm a very exploratory person. I'm a researcher. I love people. I love to learn about things. So I felt very stifled. And then anytime you have a question, I get this so often from my audience when they slide into my DMS, one of the main 
things that everybody says is they were not permitted to ask questions that you were immediately called a cherry picker, a Jezebel, a Mm. whore, like any of the Christian slurs that people throw out at each other to minimize the person's valid questions. And after a while, people get not only afraid, but also exhausted by being like, okay, if you have an answer to everything that's not research, that's not based in the theology that I'm looking at on my own, Mm. then where do I go? Mm. And that's, that's what I see progressives as we're like these wandering souls where we're like, we could not be boxed into this black and white narrative anymore. We couldn't stand for the misrepresentations of God. And I don't want to get political, but I think the Trump thing was in, incredibly confusing to so many of us mm-hmm. because he didn't look, feel or taste or smell like Jesus to a lot of us. Sure. That was like another reckoning or seeing Christians push back on Black Lives Matter is another reckoning where you're just like, wait, what is happening? And I think I would define progressivism as this space where you're permitted to say, hey, what's up? I'm reading something differently. I'm I'm understanding this text differently. It's a lot like... um, the Jewish approach where all of these scholars in Judaism were actually sitting down at dinner tables over wine, discussing theology, debating, like mm. actually enjoying mm. like you do on this channel, like enjoying this space of gray and complication, mm-hmm. which is where I want my channel to come in and where it has, where it's like, you said this was black and white. You said this was easy, but it is not. And let's dive into that gray area. And also, by the way, you've been given the Holy Spirit on your own. So you're allowed to intuit from the spirit what is right, what you've been told that isn't wrong. And I think a lot of us in the space just weren't given permission to ask the question, have those thoughts even. Yeah. So some of us are just kicked out into the wilderness because we had to. Obviously, mm-hmm. a lot of LGBTQ people are out here in the wilderness because they got kicked out too. Yeah. And um, and then, yeah, it does leave room for the people that are just like, but did Jesus even die? But did Jesus even rise? But for me, I think it's beautiful to come into a space where you are so comfortable asking questions that it can even go that far. And like I said, I do believe in the resurrection. So, so you, you, just to be clear, you believe in the bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus. That wasn't a metaphor. That wasn't, you know, yeah. art. That was literal. I do. I do. Okay. Dope. Dope. Okay. And so, and then, so then the overflow of that is that not everybody necessarily questions, um, the, 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 not everybody who's in the progressive camp necessarily questions the resurrection or if it's literal. It's just that the community allows for more questions of essential doctrines. Can I, did I kind of follow you correctly? I think so. But also, just to clarify, like, I don't, I don't know what progressive Christianity, quote unquote, is either. It's not like there's, mm. like, if I'm one of the leaders in this space, I'm just like, well, I fine, call me that. I'll take on that title. I'm down because yes, I am about progressing into the future. Like yeah. again, I'll go back to the interracial marriage thing. White women used to hold up signs saying interracial marriage and like black kids going to white schools was an abomination. Yes. Medical to the Bible. Yes. Um, I look now and I'm like, I'm pretty sure those same people that are holding up the anti-LGBTQ signs are going to be on the wrong side of history, just like those people were. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm about progress, progressing into the future. Yeah. And that's another thing, too. I think a lot of 
us progressives believe the Bible did not stagnate 20 or 2000 years ago, that it is still moving and breathing and it still can be open for interpretation according to where we are in history. So, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. So I think, is it possible that maybe the definitions are, are, have been mismanaged, meaning this, I, I don't know if you saw the video, but I sent you the video from uh, from Phil Visker, the creator of VeggieTales, and he has a video called What is Evangelical? And I had this conversation. I didn't know this. I, this is all new to me, right? But I've, I felt a lot like you and like, ah, like, what the heck happened? Like, because this isn't this isn't what I got saved into, right? When I got saved, it was just, it was just different. And, and, and I don't know how to to exact. I could not exactly articulate it, right? And I talked to Spencer, I think his name is Missionary Spencer Smith, hardcore fundamentalist on YouTube, called out an acquaintance of mine named Ecclesia, who's kind of in the progressive lens of things. And I did a response video to Spencer and I said, hey, Spencer, you know, you can call out these doctrine issues. But when you start saying his appearance is grotesque and this looks weird and he has a grotesque orange contact lens that's not okay now we're talking about appearances that's nonsense when we talk about doctrine let's talk about doctrine the close hand of doctrines and so spencer called me we had a conversation and spencer said uh well there's modernist there's fundamentalist he said and one of the few people that still identifies as a fundamentalist so kudos oh, wow. to him is <laughs> i'm a fundamentalist there's modernist which he would probably put in the category of uh, uh like the some of the folks on the progressive side of things right and then he said, you're like a neo-evangelical. And I said, what is a neo-evangelical? And he said, you know, you, you value the Bible and you hold these things up high, uh, but you also have some questionable fellowship. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, if Hillsong or Bethel or a progressive Christian asked you to go on tour with them, would you go on tour with them? And I was like, well, I'm not going on tour with anybody. Like, I'm at the house. I'm not leaving the house besides to go to the grocery store and hanging out, right? And so... And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. I've never heard of this. So then Phil Visker, the creator of VeggieTales, dropped this video, and he talked about the differences between modernism. And modernism is more or less, hey, the Bible needs a rewrite. It needs to be reinterpreted. Do, is, it, is it really accurate? You know, we're going to take a very modernistic view. Fundamentalists hate modernists and say they're all going to hell, and they hold the view that the scriptures is um, not, not just a high view of scripture, but a low view of culture, a low view of society, anti anti this, anti that. And they take a very literal view of scripture. So stuff like old earth isn't an option, right? Uh, the, the, the women's role in ministry completely out. We don't even, that's, we don't even go there. So they take a very literal role, role of scripture. They don't look at prescriptive versus descriptive passages. They don't look at Job being poetry or being poetic and not necessarily the parts when Job's friends are arguing isn't literal, right? Meaning that don't quote those obscure verses in Job because that's not God or Job talking. That's people that are in error talking, right? So they take a very fundamental view of that. And then there's these neo-evangelicals, right? Who's like the Billy Grahams and the people that were against segregation, the, the fundamentalists were pro-segregation, Bob Jones University, Jerry Falwell. Bob Jones University didn't allow interracial dating till the year 2000. Dang. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. Fundamentalists. Those are fundamentalists. And so, my theory, and this is just my theory, is when Jerry Falwell founded the religious right, he took the phrase evangelical and hijacked it 
and blurred the lines. And mm-hmm. now what is a neo-evangelical versus what is a fundamentalist? They're one and the same. And now you have religious right, MAGA culture, all of these things have been fused. And I can't tell the difference between someone like me that's like, no, no, I love the Bible. I love Jesus. But like, I love equality, too. And I don't think we should treat people horribly. And I don't think, you know, we we should legislate our morality on everybody. And and I think we should be known by the things we're for, not just known by the things we're against. And I'm like, what? When did this all diverge? When did this get all so weird? Right. And I and my my and so again, Phil Visker, it's a really good video and everybody should go watch it is. I think Jerry Falwell, who I'm not a fan of, who, as far as I know, never publicly repented of his segregationist views. Neither did Bob Jones um, hijacked this thing and con- converted the definition. So now when people look, folks like you who are looking at it and you're like, well. I'm not that. <laughs> like, I'm not them. I'm not on that Jerry Falwell, Bob Jones University vibes. I'm not on that vibes. And mm-hmm. so I, I guess I'm, I'm just going to deconstruct everything, right? And my experience with folks who have deconstructed is it's usually people that were hyper charismatic, casting out demons, people that were um, in our community. And I, I think I said this to you privately in the, in the Christian hip hop community. Everybody became a five point Calvinist. Everybody, and I remember talking to brothers of mine that by and large are questioning the resurrection, talking to them on the phone, bro, are you a five point Calvinist? I'm a hundred point Calvinist. <laughs> You're a what? Like, okay. And that was the move, and that's where the bag was at. Brenda, that's where that, those were the circles that they could go tour in, right? Mm-hmm. That was when uh, these guys, you know, were very in the Mark Driscoll's, the right. You, you remember that whole segment, and so uh, my experience is that those folks who have gone down the path of deconstructing form their faith on really hard stances on disputable manners that I would say are gray, and by disputable manners, I mean specifically. Um, are we, do we have free will to choose God or does God 150% elect everybody that's saved, right? Like we're talking disputable is, is secular music a sin, right? And they took really hard stances. And then when that got pulled, when that thread got pulled, their entire faith collapsed because they built their foundation on secondary and third issues and even opinions that because of fundamentalism, which you're talking about, there's an answer for everything. There's a, there's an answer for everything. You know, everything is black and white. And I would say there are some things that are black and white. I do believe that God is a holy God. I do believe the Bible is inspired. I do believe sin is a real thing. Uh, but there are things that are disputable that I'm just like, ah, oh, well, you know, I don't know. Like cancel Netflix, uh, Romans 14. Think about it. I don't go pray about it. Right. So um, I know I just said a whole lot. Sorry, but do you, so my question to you is, the question is, do you think it's possible that the definitions have been jacked up and that the regular position of neo-evangelical, which is like a regular born again Christian who's engaged in culture, loves God, you know, that that's been hijacked. And now evangelical, more or less, we don't even really know what that means. And that's why so many people have pushed back and they fell into fundamentalist ideology without even knowing that, yo, I've really gone off the deep end with some of my extreme views on these topics. Yes. Everything you said was brilliant. I completely agree. And also I think what's coming up for me is that like, let's see. (laughs) Um, I worry that progressivism will, or progressive Christianity will become this definable 
cemented thing because mm-hmm. I, I always look at that and I'm like, well, that's the moment progressivism will fall and then we'll need to replace it with something else because anytime you get hyper dogmatic and you decide this is what we're about and this is what it means, mm-hmm. I feel like it closes the door to all of those beautiful conversations. Like so much of my progressive experience has been allowing myself and my audience to say, I don't know. How precious is that sentence? Yeah. I don't know. Like, do you know how many light years away some stars are? Do you know how grandiose this universe is? Do you know how deep the ocean is? Like, if you think you know everything about divinity and you know what happens in the afterlife, like, you are tripping. You are fooling yourself. Our brains don't even have the capacity to understand how profound and beautiful divinity is. And all we have is this gorgeous text called the Bible that we can hearken back to to see like the founding fathers and mothers of our faith and what their experience with God was. And um, for me, yes, these, these definitive things get so convoluted to the point that they either don't mean anything anymore or they mean everything. Yep. It's too much. Yeah. That's good. Uh, There's a quote, and I I heard Andy Minio say it, but he said, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is fundamentalism, or the opposite (laughs) of faith is certainty. When when, when we have certainty on every single matter, and people hear me say it on here a lot, like, hey, I, I feel certain I feel certain on a couple of core issues and I say I don't know a lot because I don't really know. But I'm I know what I'm I know the things that I'm certain about, right? And I think for me, Brenda, I got dismissed as the liberal Christian by all of my Calvinist friends. I got dismissed as the liberal Christian by all of my prog- uh, um, charismatic friends that were casting out demons. The majority of them are atheist or agnostic now, or they're, they're completely have left the faith. Right. And a few of them have reconstructed their faith. But all along, I was the guy that was like, you mean you're not casting out demons, Ruslan? And I was like, nah, nah, <laughs> no, nah, I'm not bro. I mean, yeah, you know, pray for him. I'm just, you're not speaking in tongues. You know, you don't pray in tongues every day. Uh, I mean, I've prayed in tongues, but I don't know, you know, and I was that guy. And, and so if I got to, interview with my buddy Rufat, who's an ex-Christian rapper turned atheist comedian. You'd probably get a kick out of it. And he talks about this like, and he really still appreciates my faith because he's like, bro, you never went into these radical extremes. And that's where he ended up. He ended up in these radical extremes judging me, right? And 20 years later, I, I'm still walking with Jesus. I'm more or less believe the same stuff I did when I first got saved. And Joseph Solomon Uh, One of my good friends who went through a process of deconstructing, he said it on this channel. He said when he travels, he said, if I want to travel long, he said, I got to travel light. I can't travel long with a gang of luggage and carry-ons and all these different. He says, backpack. And I could travel really, really long. And he said, now I hold a couple of close-handed doctrines. And that's always been my view. It's like I hold a couple of things close. Literal resurrection, the Bible's the inspired word of God, Jesus is God, so on and so forth. And I hold those things near and dear. And so that's why, and I should have some of that with you privately. I've just never gone through that process. Now, I've had doubts and I've had questions. And I've and I've always came up around very intellectual Christians and very um, a lot of apologetics and a lot of just, I don't know, safe spaces to just ask questions and challenge and push back and um and and I, I don't i didn't have that yeah that's and i guess so that's you we don't really know our paradigm until we speak to somebody else it's like yeah i didn't didn't have that paradigm so um 
Before you move on too, I just wanted to say like the, the thing that I say about my channel is that God resides in black and white. Like I believe there is absolute truth. Okay. And that's one thing that I actually know that there is absolute truth. That okay. There is an answer to these infinite number of questions that we have. But as soon as we enter this fallen world, it's a world of gray. It's a world of chaos. And mm. I also think that one of our, I mean, I would say this is the defining problem of okay. religion in general, no matter what faith space you're in. When you are building your foundation of faith on fear, mm. what I see all the time. And I also believe like in prayer, I received this message that the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is fear. God is love. Jesus is the purveyor of love. He's the one pushing us towards that. And yet Everything is fear, fear yes. of hell, fear of not being perfect. Yep. And it's just like that's fear, not fear, fear of the vaccine, fear of the leftist agenda. Right. Fear of, <laughs> fear of even having a conversation like this yeah. and fear of changing your mind. And I know it like this is something that a lot of people don't understand as well, which is like, yeah, I might push back on this evangelical culture, but I was the little baby angel queen of it. I was <laughs> the one that organized our purity uh, ceremony at church when I was 15 years old. I was making anti-abortion artwork mm. in school. I was arguing uh, seven day earth or six day earth with my biology teacher. Like <laughs> I was in it to win it. I love it. And, <laughs> I love not, it. Yeah. I'm not coming from a place of like, Hey, I, for me, I'm coming from a place of deep understanding. And my message is like, let's get into this gray because I think beyond any other point in life, like if you have these definite answers, why do you need God? Why yeah. do you need to press into prayer? When you find a gray area where you don't know the answer, what a beautiful opportunity to sit down with the ones you love, with yourself, with your spirit and prayer and dive in that's yeah. an invitation yeah that's good um so let's let you, you you made a beautiful segue to go back to to the purity culture so you you, you touched on that so um i i, I don't know it, 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 just talk about your experience with that and what it meant for you because i think um i think it's done more harm than good from from what i've seen uh, but maybe I'm wrong, right? Like maybe I'm wrong, but well, by and large, I've seen a lot of young Christian girls that were in the church that my wife was going to, that was pushing this, I kiss dating goodbye nonsense. And like a gang of them got pregnant at like 18. Right. Mm -hmm. And just like went through some pretty tough seasons, despite all of the purity culture. And, uh, and me and me, me and my wife were dating. Like, we were just like, no, this is nonsense. We're going to, you know, we're going to approach a different way. And thank God for the book, Boundaries and Dating. Um, so explain what purity culture is uh, and, and why you reject it and, um, and just your experience with it. And then, and then kind of, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, sure. In a nutshell, I see purity culture as this narrative that your virginity is not only precious, but it's the most important thing that you hold, especially as a woman, but men get it as well. So you have this gift, like just two days ago, Jen Johnson wrote about like, don't let anyone steal the most precious gift you have. And Lisa Bevere wrote this horrible purity ebook on her Instagram that I despise. Mm -hmm. That literally says you forfeit your dignity, your worth, and your strength when you give in too soon. Okay. And that why would a man want to know you more deeply when he's known you so quickly? 
it also begets rape culture because it's this culture of modesty, which is that if you cause your brother to stumble, if you're a stumbling block, you deserved you. it. Yeah. Your, yeah. your spaghetti strap was not thick enough. You, mm. I have a friend who was sexually assaulted by our pastor at our church, the, the worship leader. Yeah. And leading up to that moment, she was told she swayed her hips too much. <sighs> Girls whose bodies um, develop more quickly yeah. are told you got to wear bigger and bigger clothes. Make your T-shirt looser. Now mm. looser. Now looser. Um, obviously, I've talked to more Black women and women of color who say that their body type was just decimated through purity culture because it's just naturally curvaceous in a lot of those instances and it's like it goes back to a bit of colonization and white supremacy too even like what kind of body is acceptable what kind of way to dance is acceptable or wow not acceptable. okay no you're good you're good i know i know the baby's there you're totally good we, we if you need to take a break we could totally take a break so don't don't um that's 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 heavy and that is something that as a male i have no direct idea on that like i don't know what that is like i have no context of you that you guys suffered too let me get in that in a second yeah and yeah i and i've said this before like at some point we got to address the issue with men in our own heart with with regards to lust and with regards to these things that you can't just blame women for everything and call everything a stumbling block especially uh when some women don't know that 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 may be whatever you think it is or they're sending you signals or whatever we live in southern california you're in la i'm in san diego uh when I go to the beach, I take my shirt off. When my wife goes to the beach, she wears a, a two-piece bathing suit, right? Um, she's not in the in the in the beach with a t- with a shirt on, right? And and my, my wife my wife is black, by the way. I don't know if you know that. So I, I hear the the racial undertones of some of what you're saying as well. Like I understand that. Um, here's my, so my question would be in terms of purity culture, where would you say wisdom comes in? Like where would you say wisdom comes into some of this stuff? Because here I'll, I'll be vulnerable with you for a second. So I did a turning 35 shirtless photo shoot last year on my Instagram, and <laughs> uh, it was it was fun. And I got you know I got, I have a trainer and I'm really into fitness and stuff like that. And so um, I uh, I last year I had a predominantly male audience. I had 90 percent male audience this year it's um it's more women it's like i don't know like 40 60 right i'm look at my analytics as i'm sure maybe you do sometimes and so um outside of the covid 19 weight that i've put on this year (laughs) i've i think i'm going to um I I don't think I'm going to do a shirtless photo shoot, right? Because I don't want to be in a position where anyone is look, any woman or any, I don't want to position anybody to look at me a specific way. Even though for me, it's completely harmless. And it's like, yo, we should celebrate fitness and health. And this is very important to me. And uh, too many people are obese and too many people are having health issues, right? So um, I would say that that's a wisdom issue. Like to me, that's a wisdom issue. I'm not just going to frolic shirtless photos of me all over social media because I can, uh, I want to use a bit more discretion in that. Um, can I, do I have that Liberty? Sure. Uh, outside of the COVID-19 weight, you know, I I don't know if I'm going to do a turning 36 photo shoot. Maybe I'll do a turning photo 40 photo shoot. Right. But you know, I guess that's, that's my question is like in some of the purity culture stuff. Yes. A lot of it has been really overemphasizing a woman's virginity, really coming down and shaming hard, especially young girls. Um, 
with this kind of stuff, right? But I think that that's a reasonable uh, position to say, hey, you know what? My, fitness isn't my niche. I'm not Ruslan, the fitness guru, right? So I don't, do I really need to put up more shirtless photo shoots just because I can't? I think I could be a bit wise. Isn't there a level of discretion and wisdom somewhere in there? Or like, should we just all flippantly do what we want and walk around however we want? Oh, well, it's funny that you just ended with, or should we flippantly just- Sorry for the extreme. I didn't mean to go to the extreme. Get, help me understand where's the, what's a reasonable way to navigate a, a conversation like no, that? Trust me, Ruslan. I love that you've said it that way because that, again, is the accusation of progressives. Like, oh, well, if you're not going to do this strict adherence thing- But did you think that was strict? I, Brenda, you thought that was strict what I described? That, that that to you comes off strict and legalistic? Well, no. Okay. So you did have a more, you could say that you have a more nuanced view on it, but at the same time, that needs to just be a person's personal choice. Because the fact of the matter is, like you said, we both live in Southern California. There's constantly people walking around in states of undress. And to me, the more that we prop up these as our ideals, the more that we see someone's attire as a hint to what kind of morality they have or what kind of sexuality they have, the more we're going to other people in culture, like this battle quote against culture just Mm. makes you less capable of loving your neighbor. Like for Mm. me, if I'm going to, I have a son, I'm not going to raise him to bat an eyelash about like a woman's body. I want it to be, or a man's body. I don't know who he's going to be into. Like I want it to be, your body is beautiful just mm-hmm. because you even lead with sexuality doesn't mean that's an invitation for someone to take you as a sexual object. It is always your responsibility as the individual, male, female, whatever, to say, you know, what Jesus said. If something causes you to stumble, you pluck your eye out. Mm-hmm. You're not blaming the other person for it. Yeah. You take responsibility. Yeah, it's good. So. I think it's just a slippery slope. I think it's beautiful if you want to say in your personal self, as I have, like my pendulum swung really majorly. Like I could tell you an abridged version of my story too, if that helps. But one of the things that I did when I was swinging all the way into hookup culture, Mm. which I say as the exact opposite of purity culture, like that they're both bad, that I'm against both of them. Mm -hmm. But um, when I was in hookup culture, I was doing a lot of like, nude or semi-nude photo shoots Mm. they were tasteful they were beautiful and so much of it was about emancipating myself from this culture and feeling like oh, i just have to break free i don't want to be constrained by this anymore Mm -hmm. but still like no matter what i was doing if someone is a sex worker on a corner even like we don't have a right ever to judge i'm sorry you're good don't worry about it i love kids (laughs) he's never this wild i think he's sad he doesn't have my attention maybe too close. Um, you know, I just think it's a slippery slope. You can say this is like, because now look at me, I'm like in a turtleneck. I actually feel sexier and more empowered to be more covered up situationally. Mm -hmm. I'm like your wife, I'll go to the beach in a bikini, but I don't feel comfortable in a tube top uh, otherwise, but Mm -hmm. that is just my own thing. And I think if we keep teaching our people, our Christians that you have to, behave in this certain way and dress in this certain way to be a good girl, to be a good boy, to be an honorable person, then you will more likely other people that are not leading. Like 
people don't share that morality. A girl wearing a bikini is not less honorable. A girl wearing like a hoe dress at a nightclub isn't even letting me know what kind of moral stance that she has. I can't tell how promiscuous she is because of what she's wearing. Like, I just think it makes such a big, huge deal of something that is not, it just, I don't know. I'm losing a plot at this point. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Do you think that the, again, I don't mean to just go to extremes, but do you think that the opposite extreme can fall into where a lot of these young women and men are then finding in their, finding their identity in their body and in their physicality and in how they look at 19 versus how their, their body's going to change after they have some kids, right? There, there, you get, you, your body might change after COVID-19, <laughs> you know, you put on that COVID-19 pounds, right? So, but do you think that's that? Cause that would be my concern is like, yes, I agree. Like I, I hear what you're saying. I just feel like the opposite extreme is I wouldn't want women to find their value and their worth in their body and in, or men for that matter. Right. Meaning yeah, that like, Oh, sorry. Yeah, like if a man is super shredded and his yeah. entire identity is, I'm just this buff guy. And then it escalates. And I see this all the time. It escalates to, well, let me, you know, let me take a, a testosterone booster. And then it's, well, let me shoot up some tests. And then it becomes body dysmorphia. And you're full on shooting up steroids. And again, like, this stuff happens, right? And so I think, wouldn't that be the, the problematic side is that, hey, yes. We shouldn't find all of our, you know, value and purity in the, our bodies. But then the opposite side, we shouldn't find all our value in our bodies and how our bodies look and, and how we feel in our bodies. Yes. And that's why I think that I, I love describing that I am sex positivity, body positivity person, mm -hmm. because if you are then leading with sex positivity instead of purity culture, then all of a sudden you're talking about enthusiastic consent. So if a girl is wearing a tiny club dress and Lisa Bevere says she has no worth, like you are processing it properly, which is like, if this person is not exhibiting enthusiastic consent in a sexual situation, she doesn't want to be there. I'm not moving forward. And the same thing with body positivity, like we're to honor our body, we're to be healthy and a lack of health in your body can go in so many different directions. Like, mm -hmm. you know, is it a sin to be anorexic? Is it a sin to be working out a lot? Mm -hmm. Is it a sin to be propping up your health as the most important thing in your life? Like they all can be idols yeah. for sure. And I think that it really is about that balance. But to the original point, like I think the more that we prop that up as the thing, like you can tell a girl is moral because of what she's wearing. You can tell Ruslan was, Ruslan, sorry, was having a, a bad time because he did a shirtless photo shoot. Like he must've really been stumbling in his faith back then. Like no, we need to stop equating people's attire or their body image or any part of them to how faithful or not they are in their walk. I just don't That's see them correlated the way that we want them to. Yeah. Um, so you brought you you said the word sin, and 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 then you know obviously the word purity. What what is purity and holiness to you? And what is sin to you? Is it is it are you are you pulling that? Because some of the pushback I get uh, when people are talking about the progressive um, view, and again, we've established it's a very wide spectrum of people, and there's no doctrine of statements of this is what we believe, right? Uh, <laughs> but it 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 it, it kind of can come off that 
the person is creating God in their image, like they're submersing with their values and their feelings and saying, well, I feel this way and therefore God has to be okay with this because this is how I feel. Instead of saying, I'm created in the image of God and what does God think about holiness and, and sin and how do I then submit myself to what God's standards are, right? So how do you how do you view that in terms of like, what is holiness and purity to you and what would you say sin is to you? Well, for the pushback that progressives lead by their feelings, and it's like whatever I feel is right goes, is such a massive misconception because I have found that I have more spiritual conviction in my life now than I ever have before. Because again, I don't, I can't look at a list of rules Mm -hmm. and actually live off of that. That doesn't work for me. I really had to figure out what faith was for myself. And I find that every day it expands. Like the Holy spirit is always taking me to task and calling me out on ways that I can improve myself, the way I handle people. Like I've been working on loving my enemies through Sean Foyt. I cannot stand that kid. He is driving me freaking insane. Do you know Bethel? He's doing these like maskless COVID concerts all over the country. No. Making tons of money, selling his album, selling t-shirts. He's from Bethel? Oh, yeah. Oh, fun. <laughs> um, but anyway, like I'm always taken to task by the Holy Spirit and conviction. And, and that's the point of conviction. It's like, I'll tell you the truth. I storm around my house having some hatred and vitriol in my heart for that kid. Mm. And that's when the spirit again takes me to task and is like, no, 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 this Mm. is not how it's going to be. This is not what life is about. Like practice what you preach, be who you are. Mm. And I have to always work through those things. And I am devoted to my entire life being that journey. I've, I said, since I was a little girl that I wanted to die wise And I still feel the exact same way. Like wisdom is my pursuit. So it's not about feelings. I'm not out here justifying what I want to do. Maybe maybe I used the word feelings wrong. Maybe I meant like what we arrive at in terms of our ideology as people, whatever we think is right, which can take a, you know, a more progressive social position. And then we then re- construct God in our image and what our ideology is or what a segment of society views is. Well, these things are right and these things are okay. And da, 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 and therefore, instead of saying, hey, what is holiness and is God a holy God and what are God's standards? What are God's expectations? And how do we submit to those? Right. And so I, I'm sorry if I use the word feelings. I do think sometimes feelings are involved, but I didn't mean to come off dismissive. I mean, our ideology, our right and wrong, our morality, our view of what we think is just in the Bible and not just in the Bible, right? Um, and then we we flip it and we put God in our image, right? Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting to me. And don't worry about it. I just like, I went on a tangent with that because that is the common accusation that I get. Sure. That everything sure. is just being led by my own desire to fit God into that box, follow what mm-hmm. I've yeah, and not, you know, I don't. I don't think feeling is the is the right word. So I apologize for saying that word feeling because I don't. I don't think you're just sitting here like being some emotional woman and f- you know what I mean. Like feeling that's that's not how that meant to come up. I meant in terms of like, hey, I think that these things are right and these things are wrong, and therefore because I think these things are right, therefore God has to co-sign what I think and what I sometimes feel what I think, what I've thought through, what I've processed, right? And then converting God into that image instead of, again, instead of going and saying, well, what is, what are the attributes of God? What is God's ways of doing things? What is God's heart for how we are to live 
Um, and not, not in a, everything is black and white. Do I, you know, can I listen to Billie Eilish or can I not listen to Billie Eilish? I saw you had a video on there about Billie Eilish. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, I mean some of the other stuff. So that, that, that's what I meant by that. Um, yeah. And yeah, do you, you hear you? Uh, hopefully you heard my heart in that. Cause I was not trying to come off like, I'm just really offended and I don't want to talk. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. Thank you for being so kind. Okay. You're totally fine. I'm hard to offend, especially after these three years on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you, sure you are. Okay, so tell me your view. You said you believe the Bible is the inspired word. Of, but, oh, but, but just to go back, I you believe. Talk about sin. Go oh, yeah, Let's talk about sin. Sorry, great. Let's talk about sin. So the Billie Eilish example is a perfect example because mm. people always write me with these very legalistic questions, like, "Am I allowed to do this? My how short can my skirt be? How like long can I go down on my boyfriend for? What's you know?" It's just like. Oh my gosh, these hoops you're going through to try to figure out if you're sinning or not are so detailed and so tormentative to the human spirit. Like mm. it's doing no one good to be abstaining from Billie Eilish because like your pastor made you afraid of her or something. Right. So the way that I view sin is simplistic. And at the same time, I think it's profound, which is that and with Adam and Eve, at the fall of the world, they got introduced after speaking to Satan by three different things. And that was shame, fear, and pain. So as soon as they ate the apple, they realized they were naked. They were ashamed of themselves. Then they were afraid that God was going to find them. They were, they got the fear in them. And then they, you know, had pain, obviously, like Cain killed Abel and Eve had to have pain during childbirth, all of these things. This is what living on planet Earth is to me. Those three invitations that we receive, pain, fear, and shame. And the interesting thing I think about that Adam and Eve narrative is that the Bible does call us a task on those three things so many times, either directly or in nuanced ways. Like fear is mentioned more times in the Bible than anything else. I think it's over 90 times that God says, fear not, or some variation of that. Mm -hmm. And yet so much of our faith is built on this foundation of being afraid of doing the wrong thing, afraid of hell, et cetera. We've mm -hmm. already discussed. Um, but I really believe that when you accept either of those three things, whether you're ingesting fear, pain, or shame, or you're outputting them into the world, you're making other people ashamed, you're making other people afraid, that that leads to sin. Mm. This is, again, why I think the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is fear. Because these three major things beget all of the sin that I can see in the world. Like, I trace backs to all of them, even, like, I have a friend that just got out of prison and he's telling me about how his gang is about to come at the other gang right before Christmas and try to like Jeez. kill off as many people as possible. And I was just like, I know it's a culture and I know it's like in unfathomable to me and my privilege and where I come from. I understand that. But at the same time, even something that extreme is just the output of pain onto other people. So, and because you have your own pain, it's mm. like all of that is the opposite of love, the opposite of how we're supposed to be behaving. And then again, I go back and then I ask people. So then it's like, if you're sliding into my DMs and are like, is God going to be mad if I listen to Billie Eilish? My question is, do you feel like pain, fear, or shame when you listen to her? Like, do, do, does it bring up negative emotions for you? Are you tripping? 
Or are you just like tuning out and it's in your car and you're just enjoying the sound of the music? Because those are two different outputs or, or two different outcomes of that, that same action. And, and it's the same thing with like someone going to a bar. Like I don't have any problems with alcohol. I'm a very moderate person with substances. Other people are not. So you might be convicted going into a bar, going to a party in a certain situation that I wouldn't feel convicted of. So again, I feel like with the faith practice that I'm from that hurt me so much, the evangelical one, they kept trying to put fear into me, shame into me, pain into me Mm. for things that I actually didn't intuit were wrong for me or wrong for my friends or or whatever. Is that making sense? Yeah, no, I I think that's making sense. I think the tough part is that if we look at the Genesis account, that's really interesting you brought up. I'm assuming based on you bringing that up, do you, 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 cause you said you believe the Bible is inspired. Do you, you believe Adam and Eve is literal? Yeah. Like as they were actual people. Oh no, that's where I like putting up a little, I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. Good. No, that's a, that's great. So exists in so many different faith practices, you know, it's, sure. it's interesting, which could make it like amazing that it is. That yeah. Well, I believe Adam and Eve are real because Jesus spoke about Adam and Eve as, as literal. So that's, I just kind of divert to Jesus. Um, I, th- I think in terms of the Adam and Eve account that the issue that I see is that they broke a command. Like God told them, don't do this. And they did it. And I would say the root of sin is that there is a standard and there is a don't and a do. And they broke that command and then came fear, pain and shame. Um, but but in terms of maybe the definition of fear was was mis- misconstrued when we see fear we fear we see fear th- throughout the scriptures as well that you know fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom work out your salvation with fear and trembling I don't know if that means like be afraid of God like a scary movie right that I I would believe that that would mean hey have reverence wow. for this God who's an all powerful all knowing omnipresent being that can crush you is in the same way where um, my son has a degree of reverence for me. He doesn't fear me, right? My son is six. He doesn't fear me. But there is a, a when I say, hey, I need you to stop right now. He knows, okay, I, I need to stop trying to punch dad in the balls and I need to stop right now, right? Oh, is that a problem you guys have? <laughs> Sometimes he'll like, he'll, we'll, we'll, we'll play fight and he'll run up and be, you know, just start punching. He's he's actually really strong for six. He can punch really hard and sometimes he'll do that. I'm like, yo, you gotta stop. Like, you know, and he'll know, okay, Roos, you know, dad's not playing. I need to stop. And yeah. so, and so, you know, I, I, I like going back to that metaphor, the prodigal son. Jesus, you know, uh, coming on a rescue mission to redeem us from sin, right? And so I, I think what you're saying is true, I think, but the command part, the standard part, right, that God is so holy and so good and so set apart and so pure that his ways are not like our ways. His standards are, are, are incapable of us keeping, and therefore Jesus had to come on a rescue mission to redeem humanity back to himself, right? Second uh, Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That substitution that happens, right? Jesus takes the wrath and takes the judgment and all the, all the ways we fall short. And by the way, I think Jesus was even harder on sin, right? Because you, you said, Sin, you mentioned sin in your life, and you said you hating this guy who's, you know, Bethel. And I, I'm empathetic to you, the way you would feel in that situation. Uh, and, and you said, hey, I, 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 I hate that. Well, that's, G, that's you quoting Jesus. You said, hey, if you even, you've heard it said, do not murder. Well, I tell you, if you even hate someone, 
you, you've, you've, you've committed murder in your heart. Hey, I've told you to say, uh, do not, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, I say, if you even lusted, right, you, 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 you've committed adultery. Paul goes on to say, hey, let nothing unwholesome come out of your mouth, right? Fundamentalist culture will say, don't say these four letter words or you're going to hell. And Jesus says, hey, nothing unwholesome. Let nothing unwholesome, uh, you know, and, and, well, Paul said that. And then Jesus says, uh, you will give an account for every idle word. Right. So I'm like, whoo. So when I look at the standards of Jesus, I'm like, we're all doomed. Like we're all doomed. And that's why the gospel is good news. Right. The, there's there's good news. We're created. There's a creator. There's a God that we're created in his image. Then sin happens in Genesis three. And then God comes and redeems and rescues his people. That's the that's the great news of the gospel. The great news of of, of Jesus. Um it just, it just seems if we were just to define sin to fear, pain, and shame, which I think it is, I feel like it kind of it kind of minimizes how holy and how set apart Jesus really was to live a pure life, how holy and different God really is as a being, and that he does have, I think, certain expectations of his kids, but they're, because of Jesus, they're just, we're covered in grace. Like we're, There's a lot of grace, but there's some expectations of, hey, son, you need to stop putting your hand on the stove because the stove's hot. You're, you're going to hurt yourself. Hey, don't run up on me and keep punching me in my private parts. That's not cool, right? That there is a degree where you can cross that line, even with a good, gracious father, where he says, hey, I'm put my foot down. You need to chill. And I, and I may have to discipline you. Now I'm against corporal punishment. Somebody, some people might freak out. So I'm with you on that. But hey, time out is a real thing. Hey, you're not going to get no TV time. Hey, you, you know, you're, you're going to be restricted. Um, I just think it's so evident in, in the universe. And I know you're a mother and, you know, th- th- these things are so obvious, but I feel like sometimes we'll, we'll compartmentalize and remove that away from God and just, you know, uh, not be as serious about how serious of a problem sin is to him. Well, I think I hear everything you're saying, but I also feel that what you've just said minimizes um, the gravity of fear, pain, and shame and the output of those because it can be as subtle Mm. as taking an issue with this kid Mm -hmm. and having that feeling in my heart towards him. Like it is that subtle. It's, it's Mm. not it's not dismissive of how profound and and deep that it can be. I think one of the most beautiful um, conversations I had was with Pete Enns, a theologian. Mm -hmm. And I was asking him, you know, we, we are so aligned. He was the first person that I ever read that affirmed my belief that the Bible didn't have to be literal, that it's actually historical, Mm -hmm. that it actually has context that actually breathes and, it's te- it's good for teaching and purpose throughout all of history and has remained as relevant as it has throughout history because of not, I don't mean malleable, like um, you can just shift it to be what it means. I mean, malleable, like it is so relevant that it surpasses all the ages and all the, the decades. I truly believe that. So anyway, I was talking to him and I was like, well, when people are in this deconstruction phase, how can they not be afraid? They're going to lose the plot that they might lose everything. They mm. might lose And he just gave this example, not to compare people to dogs, but he was like, when you have a dog on one of those collars in your yard that has one of those bounce back collars, Mm -hmm. he was like, that's how I see the Holy Spirit, where 
it can be that subtle. Like you have all of this plush, beautiful grass to explore. You might get in the mud, you might get in some sticky situations, you might make some mistakes, but you will always feel that tug where you know that something is amiss. Another really subtle example in my life since becoming progressive is I was hating on Paul. I'm a big, huge justice person. I don't like when I see injustice. I think nothing drives me more insane than that. Mm -hmm. So even seeing the way Paul's passages were used to clobber LGBTQ people and women and, and female pastors, I got pissed off and I think I was in mixed company and I said something like, I hate Paul or like mm. F Paul or something. And I felt that yank on my leash so hard mm. that I got on my knees later on that night. Remember <laughs> this loud, baby. <laughs> <laughs> He's, re he's rebuking you too. <laughs> no, Paul is good. He's, he's, a, he's, he's an apostle. He's a super apostle. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. See, my baby loves Paul. Hello. Um, but all like point being, it is that subtle. And I appreciate everything that you just said, like how you're breaking it down. But I do want people to know when you're invited into this space, you still are Christian and you still have major points of conviction, even in, in these areas that you wouldn't think. Like I've been convicted hard about Sean lately and I've, I've been processing and working through it. And hmm. I don't have hatred for him anymore, even though I'm still freaking annoyed, but I'm on a journey with it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Thank you for being vulnerable about that. Um, that's, that's really good to know. So, <laughs> When you when you say you believe the Bible is inspired, I think then this is probably where um, th this is kind of where you mean like it's you believe it's inspired. Do you believe it's preserved? Do you think the central message of it has been preserved, even with some of the hard passages? Right. Because there are some stuff like, by the way, like I. I think what you're saying is the is the position that most people will be like, yeah, I wish she was 100% right about all of her views, and I believe it was really that way. I think the tough part about us when we, when we again, when we go back to reconcile with what we think and our ideology versus what, what is presented in the scriptures of, we can get into specific sins if you want, but um, it can just be, it can be in contrast of that. And I, know, and I know the response is like, well, man, we've also been on the wrong side of history on some of this stuff, like interracial yeah. dating and all that kind of stuff, which I'm like, yeah, that's terrible. It's trash, right? You know, I'm, my wife is black. That's, that's freaking horrible. Um, but, but your view of scripture, so you believe the Bible is inspired. Um, you believe, and, and when I say inspired, I mean, um, there are like, it is inspired, it's preserved, it's God breathed. It, you know, all scriptures, God breathe, you know, uh, so on and so forth. It's the, um, it's, it's, it's God's, uh, special revelation to people. Um, uh, what I don't mean is that everything is prescriptive in the Bible. Hence mm -hmm. I have tattoos, right? I don't think that passage is prescriptive to me having tattoos. And some people are going to think I'm not saved right here in this chat. Right. Uh, I don't think the passage and, and Paul saying, hey, women can't utter a word in, in, in a church service. I don't think that's prescriptive to every Christian throughout all of history. I think that was descriptive for a very specific time. So I just went Old Testament and New Testament. Some people might be like, what do you mean? Women supposed to be quiet in church. I don't believe that, right? And I'm going to have a woman pastor on here and, you know, eventually we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that. So I believe it's inspired. I believe it's preserved. I believe the central theme and message of it has been preserved through history. Um, 
but I don't think that it's all prescriptive. I don't think it's all meant literal. Again, I referenced Job. Like, I think if you're reading Job and you're thinking that all those passages of his friends arguing is you could pull theology out of those. No, you can't. That's not who that's for. And so, um, that's kind of my view of scripture, and uh, and and the, but then you got to kind of take a more nuanced look at culture and covenants and all of these different things, and also understanding that scripture interprets scripture, right? Meaning that there are parts where um, Jesus seems to talk about money in a very negative way. And then you read the parable of the talents and it's like, hey, you got to be faithful with what you have. And then you read Proverbs and Proverbs is very specific about how we are to handle money. And right. And so I think scripture also has to interpret scripture. Um, so that's that's kind of like my view. Right. And, and and that might again, I might have just jumped into heresy territory for certain people just because I said it's all not prescriptive. Right. Um, but I think that's the most historically accurate view. Right. Like, hey, um, we don't avoid shrimp. And we don't, you know, we don't send women away when they're on their menstrual cycles and don't touch them. Like that stuff is, that stuff is descriptive for a specific season, for a specific time. So what would you say your view of scriptures without getting into the weeds of like, was Adam and Eve literal and all that kind of stuff? Um, do you believe that it's final authority on human conduct? I mean, I do think women should be sent away on their periods. <laughs> he was uh, on to something there. <laughs> Thank you for it's making not, that joke, by the way, because I could never get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be better for everyone in the household. Um, I I appreciate how nuanced you are on that. And I think it sounds like you and I are going to be pretty aligned on that. Like, sometimes I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall. <laughs> you're, you're so fine. Don't do not feel bad. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm banging a head against a wall having these conversations with people about God's word being literal versus inspired and what different, like, I'm like, if it says inspired, that doesn't imply that it's literal. And then if it is literal and you're going to take it that way to your point, then you're not saved because you have tattoos and we do have to send women away in their periods. Like there's not any consistency with the literal argument. And that's why I don't understand mm. it. Because you get selective, you pick and choose what's convenient. If you exactly. if everything is literal, yeah, that's a good point. Exactly, and I'm like, and I'm the cherry picker. You know, like that doesn't make any sense. And also to your point, like the Bible can appear to contradict itself in certain points, and that is because I honestly believe it's a historical account representing thousands of people in a very expansive portion of time in mm. history. So, of course, there's going to be different moments. Like, for example, like you're bringing up Paul's letters. Like we have his letters to the churches and we don't have the letters to Paul. So we're only getting half of the story there. Mm. And if you look at someone like David, I keep saying he looks like he has some sort of like bipolar disorder or something. And I don't mean that to degrade anyone that has a mental illness. Like he does seem to be really like high highs, mm -hmm. low lows. He seems to be very emotionally distraught. And then he's cruising off of God's love. Mm -hmm. And to your point again, like, can we just pluck one of David's passages out and be like, thus saith the Lord. Mm. And to me, I'm just like, well, the answer is clearly no. Mm. It's like, for me, if someone took 
our YouTube videos a thousand years from now plucked out one sentence you said and was like, thus saith the Lord. I think you'd be rolling in your grave and be like, wait, no, that wasn't the whole story. Like my YouTube channel was inspired by God. This is an account. Well, to be fair, I think scriptural inspiration is a little different than me and you having an inspired conversation. I think I do think that that was a different season in time and how God wrote an orchestra. I don't know the mystery of it, but I do know there's something there, right? Like I do know that there's something there different than me and you who genuinely feel inspired. We're sharing God's truth with people. And yes, we, I would be rolling in my grave because I'd be like, I'm not a writer of scripture. That was something very unique. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I did want to chime in there. And, And I do agree with that. And then at the same time, I still do stand by the point that I do think Paul would not only be rolling in his grave, but also be very, very profoundly upset to see how his words have been used to abuse and mistreat people. Uh, especially the marginalized. I, I do not think contextually that was his message whatsoever. He didn't walk through life that way. He didn't mm. degrade women in his life. So the fact that his words have been used to harm women, I do think would break his heart. And then we have the issue of translation. And this is something that I feel like a lot of evangelicals or fundamentalists have their blinders on about. Like, well, no, God is powerful enough to preserve the original text. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, original message, intent, overall arching story and idea. Yes, sure. I think you can see that with something as trashy and horrible as the message Bible. Sorry, no offense, but oh my God, I hate the message Bible. I just seem so minimizing of everything. Mm -hmm. You have the uh, true love waits Bible, which perverts the entire text into sex. Like it makes every single passage about sex. That's Mm. a perverted translation as well. Wow. I've never even heard of that one. I know the passion translation just came out. That's kind of like the one Bethel champions. Oh, so I'm going to assume, I, whatever, I'll, I'll look into that. I'll see how I feel about that. But, um, but we have proof, historical proof that men, um, real human, tangible people throughout history have had their hands on that text and have gotten to decide what we are reading in it and what we are not reading in it and what words are being translated or mistranslated you know, the whole thing about homosexuality is a perfect example. It didn't enter the Bible until the 1940s. So it's like, even if that is an appropriate translation, which I absolutely do not believe that it is, we still have to take our blinders off, which is, again, what progressivism is about to me, and say, now my blinders are off. What happened historically? Where were people's motivations? Were they pure motivations? Were they a little sour? And I do think that by the grace of God, somehow the text does remain powerful and profound and God-breathed, no matter what human beings have done to it. But we have proof that that there are major disparities in translation. So then it's like, well, what Bible are we talking about? Which translation is a literal word of God? Is it the one that says hell zero times or the one that says hell 67 times? Because those both exist. Yeah, as far as I know, there's stuff in there about Mark, like those last couple verses of Mark weren't in the early manuscripts. There's some grammatical errors here and there. 
Um, what what would what would you say is proof to say that stuff has been changed? I know the word like homosexual. We brought up the word homosexual. Like I know that that word was introduced later, and and there's you know eight verses, and people believe he was talking about uh, grown men with children, right? Like that 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 it's it, it, the word doesn't translate the way it does now. Um, what and, and I can get into we can get into that. But what when you say there's proof that it's been tampered with, like what specific proof? Well, it doesn't even have to be like a nefarious bad thing. Like uh-huh. tampered, I think maybe implies that there is bad implicate or bad motivations, which I definitely think can exist. But the quote proof that we have is that there's over 600 Eng- English translations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like why, if it's preserved and perfect, do we have 600 different translations? And like I said, one translation says hell zero times. Another translation says hell 67 times. What is that disparity? Which translation says hell zero times? I've never um, heard of this. I can Google it and send it to you right okay. after. I, forget. I don't want to misrepresent it. But there's hell, for example, is represented with different word counts according to different translations. Yeah. And if you're not looking at like, oh, people in history were just out to get us, it doesn't even have to be that. We also have a limited language. For example, in the English language, there's no non-binary pronoun. There's no word for neither male, female, or both male and female, whereas other languages have that word. Or in the Greek language, which the Bible was written in, there are, I think, six or seven or eight words for love. Mm-hmm. There's like friendship love, right. God love. We have one word for love. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes it's just, unfortunately, the limitations of our own language and I do believe, I don't know the historical roots of it, but I theorize that patriarchy is the reason that we don't have a non-binary word. And the fact that we don't means that Elohim, which is how God is referred to partially in Genesis, is a female pronoun. Spirit is based in female pronouns, but still in our English translation, God is always referred to as a man and as he. Mm. So that is actually a flat-out misrepresentation of the original Greek and Hebrew text. So, and again, like, maybe that's no one's fault, but our English language just doesn't have that word to accurately represent it. Or actually, it would be more accurate to let us know when it had been a feminine pronoun, but we don't have a translation that does that. Yeah, I was, who was I talking to? But yeah, I've, I've, in terms of the Elohim thing, I remember when the Shack came out, it was a big deal, and people were like, well, in the in that book, you, you know, some words used to describe the Holy Spirit were more feminine sounding in some of the earlier, and I've also heard that about that with the, with the Elohim in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written on. And so I think, I think I've heard some of that. I don't have the, you know, I don't pulling up the blue letter Bible and trying to dig into the the Hebrew and the Greek. I've heard some of that. Um, Obviously I think God exists outside of gender. Right. But at the same time if Jesus is praying to God, the father, and we, again, my, my plumb line is Jesus. So if Jesus is referring to God, the father repeatedly, God, the father, God, the father, and that's who he's praying to. um, I'm not going to change it to God, the mother, because I think patriarchy is bad and I think we've, you know, because again, I think that's more in like infusing our ideology and our modern view of patriarchy and this and that into the image of God instead of saying, well, how did Jesus pray? Well, Jesus prayed father in heaven, right? So I'm going to pray the way Jesus prayed. I I just tend to defer to just have a a simple, a simple, um, a simple faith. 
Um, in terms of the LGBTQ uh, conversation, and I think a lot of people want to, you know, know your views on that. Um, the the, the I, I remember Jay, is it Jay Baker? Jim Baker was a big televangelist, and his son, Jay Baker, uh, became an emergent pastor. He was one of the first, like, uh, LGBTQ-affirming pastors, I think, like, 2004, 2005. I've consumed a good amount of his content, and they go over all eight verses about the LGBTQ in the Old Testament. And they would just kind of say, well, the Old Testament, that's the Old Covenant that's similar to tattoos, which... I don't know about that. But then he says in the New Testament, then he gets into what you just described. Shows that word didn't exist until the 1850s. Um, the part that I think is I've never heard anybody address is when you see Romans 1, the word is, I don't even think the word is used, but it just goes right to the jugular of not just men with men, potentially men with boys, but women gave up natural reaction, you know, relations and, and, and you know, had sex with other women. Um that passage to me, and again, this is not to elevate any one sin above the other, right? Because I think sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Adultery is adultery. Lust, right? Uh, but I do think that Romans 1 makes it fairly clear, hey, this is the natural, like God has an order and a natural way of doing things. That's not to say that LGBT people, LGBTQ people should be treated poorly or persecuted or have legal rights removed or bullied or shamed because I think all of that is not Christian but when we start then taking such a plain passage and saying ah that's not what it really means I hear you on some of those other words and I think there's an argument for that but how do you reconcile Roman one as just like a pure like here this seems like God's standard for you know sexuality uh, and Paul uses words like unnatural. Um, what, how do you how do you reconcile that in terms of every, everything else we talked about? Yeah, I mean, like you said, there it's a it's a heavy topic, and there's a lot of different passages that you can sort of get into and theologically debate. Um, but with that, I really look at the terms natural and sexual immorality Mm -hmm. we've kind of been giving these blanket statements natural and sexual immorality and they are all throughout the bible and and not even that much i think that's very limited um amount of times that sexuality is even addressed in the bible and again i think with purity culture and everything it has become elevated as the number one thing which is which is whack by the way when we start making any specific sin um, or any specific group of people as other or worse than, I think that's terrible because the same pastors, and we can get into this later, but the same pastors will come really hard down on the LGBTQ, but be okay with their worship leader living with their girlfriend or fornicating, right? And I and I don't think that's, those just aren't just scales. We can get into that part because I'm curious to hear some of your views on that. But um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 it's okay. Um, but I just, I really see sexual immorality as exactly as simple as you would think, not jumping through all these hoops of, for example, in the Bible, there are not one instance, there is not one instance of a man getting down on his knee, proposing to his girlfriend, becoming a fiance, planning a wedding, like that is not the way relationships were had in biblical times. Mm-hmm. So even the concept of, quote, save yourself for marriage, the Bible makes it clear to save yourself for marriage. I am not seeing that. At the time, quote, virginity or a lack of sexual experience was really used as 
a bargaining tool. Like women were given to powerful men or rich men to make alliances with other countries, to form alliances with families, to get a farm running properly. Mm-hmm. So the idea of sexual morality becoming this blanket term for having sex outside of marriage, which I don't see clearly represented in the Bible as we know it today. And then just jumping through the hoop to be like, that is also the unnatural quote sin of same sex sex. That I just think is a a huge leap because again, there was no homosexual relationships in the Bible that were consenting that were well. And, and some people argue that too. Some people do believe that there are figures in the Bible, like when Jesus went to heal. Um, I'm like losing all my words now. No, you're good. <laughs> okay, good. Thanks, babe. <laughs> my partner's taking my wild baby on a drive. Oh, <laughs> I was having my brain fried for a second. Thank you. Um, (laughs) It's hard to be a mama and hear your baby cry and like not do anything about it. Um, Okay. So I'm getting all scattered with this, but basically there is no modern day relationships as we know it represented in the Bible. So for me to make the leap and say that there was an issue with that back in the day or in the biblical text, I'm just not seeing it represented. And Unnatural, too, is is such a conundrum of a word, because even in nature, among many different species and primates particularly, there is homosexuality and it is natural. I think sexual immorality is about a lack of consent, is about a lack of respect, a lack of respect for your own body. I see you look at it in the comments section. Are people like, no? I'm just keeping an eye. Honestly, I'm I'm keeping an eye on it so it doesn't get wild. That That's really it. Because I got to make sure the moderator is doing their job. Well, that's <laughs> very sweet. I mean, but I don't even, I don't even mind. Like, to me, I am not the best example of a an apologist as far as the LGBTQ argument goes. Sure. Because, and I, I should have done more of my, like, remembering before I got on with you. Because I should have known you'd ask me this question. But there are so many books out now that can inform people from people that are theologians that are in that space that have that do dive into those verses and do go to the translations and the historical context to be like, this is not what they were talking about. Mm. And my main thing that I just keep saying that is, is truly a question for you and anyone else is the fruits of the anti-LGBTQ doctrine. Just the fruit of it, the suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. the suicide, the trans murder, the fact that when you tell LGBTQ people that they need to change, that they are not who they are or that they have to be celibate to live among, you know, with Jesus, to be in that world, to be among Christians, to never have a family, like these doctrines very clearly hurt people. Yeah. And I don't know how to soften the blow of you have to be celibate for your entire life because one verse in this ancient text seems to imply that it's unnatural what you're doing. I think those verses are so often talking about lust. Like in Sodom and Gomorrah, that was about rape. Mm. That was about indecency and immorality and people Mm. really disrespecting the temple of their body. Like 
when I see unnatural, when I think of lust, I think of hookup culture. Mm. I think of completely like letting go of all of that and not being admirable in your sex life. And, and that's just what I see. Like, I think you make some really good points. I think the tough part is um, in terms of bad fruit, bad root, which I, I don't know if you've coined that phrase, but that's a brilliant phrase. I heard you say it a while ago, right? Bad, bad fruit, bad root. That wasn't you. I thought that was you a long time ago. I thought I heard you say, hey, how do you justify the the claim, the, the, the fruit of some of this ideology? Um, yeah. <clears throat> in terms of, in, 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 in terms of, fornication right jesus jesus did say for this reason um, uh you know a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife so we do know that there was a standard that someone leaves you leave and cleave right um and i and, and i've if i'm honest and vulnerable i did a whole video about this part three of my exposed t- testimony of, of of how um i didn't really leave and cleave like i leave but i couldn't afford to live on my own and we lived with my mom for the first year of marriage which is terrible right it was not wow. it was not cool <laughs> and i and it, and it was and it and i was ashamed for that and I, I like i've never really spoken about it publicly i just did a video about it so i think you could fall short of that but i do think there's an expectation of them of of people to leave and cleave to their family i think romans one just just becomes really tough to get around and maybe that's where we just would have to agree to disagree is i think i think romans one is pretty straightforward on what natural and and i will say that animals can be unnatural animals cannot you know what i mean like there's there's breakdown because of sin entering humanity there's breakdowns in in nature there's all kinds of breakdowns and sickness and whatever and not to equate that to that but i do think that there's unnatural order to some of these things um do i think go ahead Sorry, but I just want to ask you, like, I'm sorry, I was so scattered when I was answering the question, like the most important question, but um, you have this one verse, you're like, okay, so I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that we're going to this verse, because it's kind of like the final one that stands. Because again, if you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, it's about rape. If you look at Leviticus, you have period sex. I've never heard a sermon about period sex and what a sin it is or mixed fabric, <laughs> all those things, you know, and you do have the, you do have the idea of Jesus saying, you know, to be married and to yeah. be clean. And I think that is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I do think that is representative of love. Like having sex with your person is such a heaven touching earth kind of experience. Yeah. Like it's, it's a beautiful thing for humans. But if we're saying, okay, so now we have this one verse that we're looking at and I'm telling you, okay, but let's look at this suicidal ideation. And even in the more positive light, let's look at the couples that are thriving, that are seeing so much fruit in their life, that are, are at peace with God, that they're getting down with the Holy Spirit and dirty and saying, is this wrong? And they're getting the message that they are blessed, that they can be as they are, that God made them to be this way. And I know we can't throw out everything Mm because someone said, oh, God said it's okay. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm really asking Christians to look at the disparity. Every other sin, every single other sin I see in the Bible, when you do it, like you said, it causes discord, it causes pain, it causes all like all kinds of terrible things. Mm -hmm. The gay thing, two women falling in love, getting married, raising children even, Mm -hmm. Where, where is the dysfunction? Where is yeah. the horror? Yeah, no, I think that's a fair question. So I would just, just to be fair, 
uh, the people watching this, they're going to say, well, it's not just one verse. There's a, a, a plethora of verses of Jesus saying this is what marriage is. A man should leave his you know, mother and father. So there's that verse. Obviously, there's the Old Testament stuff. Sodom and Gomorrah, was that because of rape? Was that because of poor hospitality? Then there's the other verses in the, uh, in the New Testament. So once we could say, hey, and it's not just a verse in Romans. It's an entire passage, to be fair, right? Um, okay. I, you know, and this is, this is to be fair, um, I do need to go fact check this, but from my understanding, um, some of the Scandinavian nations, which we always look at them for like great socialism and da da da, have had it very right uh, on on some things, and they had uh, uh, a marriage, homosexual marriage, very early before America. Yet, if we look at the suicide rate after it was passed, it didn't change much. Meaning that they're very highly treated, very well respected, very well received in those countries. Um, the I don't think a pastor can even say homosexuality is a sin, and it's either Sweden or Switzerland. They can't, you can't even say it, right? You're just it's considered hate speech. But we haven't the the suicide rate has more or less remained the same or gone up. So to say that, well, if we as Christians just stop telling them that it's a sin and we just tell them that they're affirmed, then that'll fix everything and they won't feel ashamed and there won't be this, which is kind of your argument, like like the, the, the theology of this has caused terrible shame to this community and it's caused terrible harm. But it seems like in, in places of the world where they are embraced and they are affirmed, that the suicide rate is still higher than a heterosexual couple. Again, I got to fact check that, you know, and, I, and we could we could discourse afterwards as well. And I'll find the article and I was I was looking up different stuff. But that's definitely a thing. Right. In terms of that. And so I, I would love to see studies on since gay marriage is passed in America. Has the suicide rate gone down? Um, but I think your point to say, hey, bad, bad, you know, bad fruit, bad root. I think that's a fair argument. My question would be in terms of fornication or sexual immorality. If we look at all the studies that they've done in terms of cohabitating, in terms of the number of partners someone has before marriage versus their contentment in marriage. Um, there's a strong amount of evidence to say, you know, maybe marriage in, in, in scripture was mad different and there was arranged marriages and all that kind of stuff. But there's a good amount to say, hey, the longer someone cohabitates before they're married, the less likely they are to get married and the more likely the percentages go up for them to get divorced. And it seems like you've taken this very like sex positive. It's okay for Christians to sleep together before they're married. And I don't know if it's, I don't know how you frame that, but I mean, that's pretty clear. Like parents who get married, create stable families, create stable homes, build wealth, pass it down to their grandkids, right? Stability for you create better offspring. If you're married, um, how do, like, how do you reconcile that part? Because I think that's, I mean, sociology has made it very clear that marriage is good and cohabitation is not good. And the longer you cohabitate, the less likely your relationship is to survive. Um, how does, how do you reconcile that? I wonder, is it less likely to survive getting married after cohabitating for a long time? Both, both. Like the, the chances of even getting married rapidly decrease the longer you stay cohabitating. And then after you are married, the chances of divorce are like twice that of a couple that didn't cohabitate. Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> Does that, I'm saying, does that make an argument for God's way of kind of not, not, not purity culture. I'm not advocating for purity culture, or how you would describe it, but just like, Hey, God has an order and a way of doing things. A man should leave his mother and father and be in a position to cleave and cleave to his wife. 
I think when we look at that, I mean, it, it, would you say that that's kind of evidence for God's heart for marriage? Well, I think I would, I would say that it is a, it's a beautiful foundational relationship to get into it that way. And that LGBTQ people should be invited to that same covenant that the rest of us are, because I just, I believe that to be true. And like, whether the evidence is anecdotal or. In my life, it's both, by the way. I know anecdotally, all my friends who cohabitated, it didn't turn out well, like at all. They all pretty much got divorced and the folks that didn't, that's anecdotal. But I think the studies su- 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 support that. I don't know. Just being in LA, I've seen the opposite too. But also LA is a freaking mess. Like, <laughs> Amen. Let's get real again. Like it's a disaster here. Like all my friends dating myself when I was dating, like it's disgusting. Everybody just like takes for granted. Cause you're now, talking about the opposite, right? The opposite end of the spectrum of kind of like hookup culture. And you would say, and that's not healthy either yeah so let's say okay so let's just go into my story very very briefly which is that i i see my sexuality on this pendulum being in evangelicalism and then deconstructing Mm -hmm. which is that i was at the top of this pendulum in purity culture being perfect saving myself for marriage believing virginity was a gift to my husband that whole narrative and when i got married my husband admitted that he had been cheating on me while we were dating and that, yeah, that to me, though, was such a blessing because, and if you read Linda K. Klein's book, Pure, uh-huh. this woman, Linda, who's a friend of mine, she's amazing. She did 12 years re- worth of research on survivors of purity culture. Mm. And the results of purity culture was a myriad of different things. A lot of harm and damage to LGBTQ people, mm. not feeling normal, not feeling welcome in the fold suicidal ideation, et cetera. Then you also have um, vaginismus, erectile dysfunction, were some results for people because- Because of purity culture? Am I following you correctly? Yeah, with purity culture. Like with your, when you have this narrative in your head- That sex is bad and sex is evil. Yep. And not only, I mean, Christians, like churches do this hip thing. Like Mike Todd's the worst at it. He's doing this brand new purity culture sermons. I saw that you showed that he donated. I think that's amazing. Yeah. But this dude is purveying purity culture, wrapping it up in a new package. And I'm like, this is the same garbage that I was fed 12 years ago. You're not saying anything you knew. You're saying the same thing, which is like your destiny will be destroyed if you don't save yourself from marriage. And Whoa, whoa, whoa. he said that? Yes. He said, is- your, he said your destiny will be destroyed if you don't save yourself for marriage. He said, he said that in those words. Let me watch out for a real quote. Basically, it was so ironic because I'm telling you right now that I have never once in my life received a purity culture message where the dude hadn't lost his virginity, quote unquote, before giving the message, before getting married. And the whole message is like, Oh, I should have been pure for my marriage, but I wasn't. And my wife forgave me and she saved herself from marriage. It's the narrative I've heard a million times. Dudes not saving themselves, having a checkered past, and then marrying a quote virgin. And this is Mike Todd's story too. He's like, I was playing the field, doing whatever I want. I met my wife. She saved herself from me. I'm so blessed. Um, And I I'll have to get you the quote or I can send you my video. But he said something along the lines of 
losing your purpose or your destiny, it was something like that. Like you won't live in the fullness of God or you won't live up to your full potential if you do this, which I think is freaking ironic coming from a best-selling multi-million dollar author like Mike Todd. Because I'm like, well, you said you didn't do it and your destiny seems fine. So what are we talking about? So sorry, to go back to your story, you so you get married, you're you're brought up in this purity culture and did you save yourself for marriage and then you're and then you found out your husband was like full on having sex with somebody else before with before you guys were married he was going on tour with bands while we were dating so before we like moved in together and got married and everything he was adding to his numbers he'd already slept with people before me and then it wasn't until we were married for two and a half years that he ended up telling me that he was cheating on me while we were dating So for me, that was a beautiful opportunity for a reckoning in myself. I consider that the beginning of my deconstruction because on the pendulum, I was up here being perfect, perfect Christian girl. Mm. And I felt very betrayed by the whole narrative because it was like, if you're perfect, if you're a good girl, your Prince Charming will come, the one that God has sent for you and you'll live happily ever after. You'll have a million orgasms. You'll ride off in the sunset together. And again, in my experience, that wasn't true. In Linda K. Klein's experience, you see it's not true for a lot of people. Not everyone is capable of making that switch to like, oh, now sex is good. Now I can have sex. Yeah, no, you're right. Sometimes physiologically, your body refuses to do it. Yeah. So for my case, when I did that pendulum swing, I swung all the way to hookup culture Mm. where I was like, baby out with the bathwater. I don't care. I'm not going to count. I'm not going to keep a tally of numbers. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because I have to free myself from this. And I like to think and hope and pray that I can be a cautionary tale for anyone because to your point of what you're saying about these studies and everything, I do believe there is divine wisdom in abstaining at the right times, Mm -hmm. at being really careful and thoughtful about your sexuality, about really, really understanding your worth, not I'm worthy because I'm a virgin. Because mind you, Mike Todd and all these other people never mention sexual assault, never mention Mm. sometimes, quote, losing your virginity isn't a choice. So you have survivors in these crowds likely that are being told this gift, Jen Johnson, your gift. Yeah don't have it anymore and that is the bs that i push up against but that is not to say that i think there is not wisdom in the beauty of reconciling your spirits your spirituality and your sexuality making yourself whole and really walking in that wholeness and that true sense of self-worth yeah that's good and 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 um gosh thank you for sharing that and that's that i appreciate you being vulnerable cliff note version uh, yeah. me and my wife, she was 17. I was 19 when we started dating, openly rejected, kissed, dating, goodbye. Four yeah. years later, we got married on our, um, dating anniversary. I was 23. She was 21. Um, and, uh, we did not have intercourse, but we definitely crossed some boundaries. Um, and then when we got married, it was de- it definitely required work to develop a healthy sex life. So I think you're right in that some of this stuff. I'm totally with you on language like your value, your worth, your gift. I just don't think it's it's helpful for women that maybe they weren't Christian, women that to your point got sexually assaulted. Like and that, and that's where me and you again we would agree on that. And so long story short, we're going on 13 years of marriage. 
we waited six years to have, thank you. Yeah, it'll be 13 years in July. Um, my wife is incrementally the, like, the main thing for all of a lot of our success and why I'm, I am where I am. You know what I mean? It's, it's really because of just like a, um, amazing wife who wants to be a mom and help me with the business and do all these other things. Right. It's, it's super cool. And so marriage has been incredibly amazing to me. Yet I agree with you that this notion that if you just save yourself, you will go in and you will have this incredible sex life. It took us work. It took us a couple years and it was work and we had to be intentional and we had to pray about it and seek counsel. And, and she was, so she, Oh, by the way, she, she was a virgin. I had three sex partners before she was a virgin and it, yeah, it just, Classic. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I wasn't out here like what a, you know, anyway, I was going to say something probably inappropriate, but I, I say all that to say it required work. It, it there was time. There, it, it, yeah, it just, it was just, it was hard. Those first couple years were hard. We were living with my mom, poor life decisions, even though we did some things right. We made a lot of poor decisions. So I guess my question to you, is it possible that maybe in your discarding of parts of purity culture that were not good, right? You said you swung the pendulum the opposite extreme. Maybe in your in your discarding of fundamentalism that you maybe also discarded some truthful things about the character of God, about the ways of God, the standards of God, right? To the point where, you know, I know you're, you say you're body positive and, um, uh, you know, pro-masturbation. I don't know if you're pro-pornography or not, but pro, you know, you're cool with people living together before being married, sleeping together before being married. Is it possible that you may be through a little too much of that, that, that baby with the bathwater out, you know, and, and maybe, maybe the pendulum could swing back into, uh, what, what, what maybe people would say is, is a more orthodox view of, of the scriptures and sexuality. Is that a, do you think that's a possibility? So I think that the answer is essentially no, okay. <laughs> but also okay. with the caveat of like, I don't know, and I'm in it for the growth and I'm in life for the wisdom yeah. and I'm in my faith practice for the Holy Spirit and for that conviction. So I'm always open to my stance changing on things and evolving and growing. <clears throat> that said, I really do feel like we're remiss to not have someone standing in the space that I am because whatever your personal morality or your belief on what the Bible means when we talk about sexual immorality, if you think that strictly means uh, heterosexual only sex between a man and a wife, then that is your prerogative. That's your belief. I just don't believe that because biblically marriage just isn't even what it was then now. So, and there's a lot of other reasons, but basically for me, again, I'm standing in this space of the gray. So we could say in an ideal world before the fall of the world, before Adam and Eve, a man and a woman getting together, living happily ever after, like you and your dope wife and your amazing relationship, that is Yes, of course, that is ideal to me in so many ways, like in my personal stance. And at the same time, we are living here in this complicated mess. I am someone that got divorced, had a bunch of sex partners, really degraded. I don't want to say degraded because I don't necessarily believe that, but I definitely um, dishonored my body, did things that I regret, it hurt other people in ways that I regret through that sexuality. And then I landed in this place where 
my moments of reckoning of reconstructing and finding who I was in this new space of spirituality in my Christian dumb was when I was about to have a casual sex experience and I had just read Linda K. Klein's book and she suggested that with the purity culture narrative, a lot of us become very compartmentalized. So if you are in church and you know you're watching porn or you know you're masturbating and people are telling you're not allowed to, or you know you're hooking up with your girlfriend, whatever, all these things, you're still going to walk into that space looking for truth and looking away to honor your faith practice and still be a whole person. And when I walked into my bedroom for the very first time in like 10 years after this whole terrible journey, which is going to be in my book that's coming out called On Her Knees. It'll be out in uh, April. Congratulations on that, by the way. That's huge. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited. But um, it, it, it lays out all of this stuff, all of the stuff about purity culture. And then this final moment, I was like, you know what, God, you get in here. Get in this room with me. Be a part of this experience with me. Because I realized the purity culture narrative and the hookup culture narrative gave me this idea that I had to separate myself. I'm spiritual here. I'm with my church body here. I pray over here and I have sex over there. And when they are separated, I believe that is where truly terrible things can happen or even medium crappy things can happen. For example... In one instance, when I was deep in my trampage, as I call it, I hooked up with this bartender in New York and it got to a point where he was getting like violent with me. Oh, goodness. And instead, and it was, it was supposed to be in a sexy way. It wasn't like dark. It was supposed to be sexy, but not at all the way I would have felt comfortable having sex with someone that I didn't know. And my body and emotional spiritual response to that was to have my first out-of-body experience. I floated above my body. And then the narrative I told myself was, well, this is what you deserve. You've been a bad girl. You're not honoring yourself. Like you deserve what's coming to you. Classic purity culture message of you're doing the wrong thing. Therefore you deserve what's coming to you. And that really signified that separation of not honoring my body, not only because I was doing something that was quote wrong for me, but also because I didn't even know that I had worth or value anymore because of my sexuality, because I was of how I was behaving. So in that final moment where I said, God, get in this room, it was a really profound experience because I was still doing quote the wrong thing. But for the first time on this sexual journey, I I could hear Holy Spirit's verse voice. I got that conviction and that ping. I knew this isn't going to yield good fruit. This isn't a good person. This isn't someone that I want to be hooking up with. I don't want to be here anymore. And I removed myself from the situation And I have never had a situation like that again, even in my dating life. All of that said, God is gray to me signifies this area where you're not only welcome to ask questions, but you're also welcome to have a different experience that's not the ideal. You're going through a divorce and you're trying to figure out your sexuality. You're gay, trans, lesbian, whatever, and you're trying to figure out your sexuality I am saying, and I believe that it's through spirit that I'm saying this, that you are welcome into my community. You're welcome into the fold of Christianity to figure that out. 
And I am never going to be, or I don't want to be prescriptive about what people should do. I always remind people the Holy Spirit has been given to you by Jesus. He left that messenger for us and you will be able to intuit right from wrong. You can get into your own Bible and look into your theological beliefs. If you believe that you need to be um, abstinent until you get married and that is of utmost importance and that's biblically sound, then you do that and you are welcome in my community. If you are on a journey with it and you're not sure where you stand, you're still here. Like too often in these cultures, we were told or we were to believe that we weren't welcome if we were on a journey like this. So I know that's not like a direct, direct answer, but at the same time, I didn't have a beautiful one person experience like you did but I still find my sexuality beautiful. I'm not married. I have a baby with someone and we live together and I don't even know if or when I want to get married again. And at the same time, I just don't see how that doesn't make me quote, not a Christian or not a good girl or not the right kind of person to be talking about theology because it's just a part of who I am. And at the same time, I think there's so much wisdom in, like I said, sexual integrity. I've never once gone to an evangelical church and heard about enthusiastic consent. And that is one of the main thing that's missing in the culture that we're purveying in like church. And I would love to stand in that space and say, you can be sexual and spiritual and you're just welcome to be here. It sounds like, it sounds like you did change your mind on, on, on hookup culture. And it sounds like you had this. Never a fan of that. Yeah, I mean it's always sucked. Yeah. Like, well, that no, but that's interesting when you think of how people speak. People who really immerse themselves. I think it was Will Cham- Chamberlain that said, "I've slept with um, a thousand women, but I rather sleep with one woman a thousand times." Right. When Chamberlain was a famous basketball player who had a lot of uh, sexual partners. So I, again, you know, am my consideration i do think that that is the the standard though i think if someone doesn't uphold that i think there's grace for that but i do think that that is where we should um aspire towards i got two more questions for you uh how how would you respond to folks in the lgbtq community like a jackie hill perry who is a full-on you know, uh, practicing lesbian had girlfriends and then had a change of mind, repented. And now she's married and she has an amazing family with Preston Perry, who's a Christian apologist, uh, or, uh, uh, side B LGBTQ people where they're, you know, Jackie had, I am going into a heterosexual marriage and relationship. And then there's side B people that would just say, Hey, uh, I'm LGBTQ. And, 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 and it even goes far as to say, I think God made me this way. However, they still hold a, uh, scriptural sex ethic, if you will. Right. So side B home LGBTQ and then folks like Jackie O'Perry and, and not to make you like the spokesperson for, for all LGBTQ people, but how would you, uh, how do you, like, how, how do you speak to, to those two types of situations? Cause that, those are both you know, those happen frequently. Both of those situations are fairly prevalent. I know a handful of people that were immersed in uh, the act and then got married and went on to have families and, you know, they're they're doing great. And then I also know people who said, yeah, I, you know what, 
I'm just not into the opposite sex and I'm just going to be celibate. And it's not even in a physical thing for them. It's, it's more of like, they just, they miss the emotional con- connection, the intimacy, and they work on other ways of getting that. Um, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I have all people, I'm not going to sit here and judge anyone. I just don't want anyone to be living in shame and fear. So if you're making that autonomous choice and it's coming from a place of true peace within your spirituality and within yourself, then I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, you should live your life differently. Jackie, you should go out and be with as many women as you want. Like, I'm, I'm not about that. I just would rather listen to people and hear their stories and and grant that the experience that they're having is true for them. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I I have a hard time finding the peace and center in that because I have, you know, talked to so many people that are survivors of conversion therapy, for example. Like conversion therapy has a ninety-nine percent failure rate. Yeah, I don't think and- I don't think Jackie was a part of any conversion therapy, to be to be fair. Yeah, and that's fair. Conversion therapy is a very specific thing, but at the same time, it was spearheaded by homosexual people or, quote, same-sex attracted people. And even when you look at those situations, even those leaders are now just out and living as gay, like gay people. So I'm just not seeing, again, like we were talking about before, the fruits. I see so much despair and unhappiness and not only that but not being able to run this race long like you were saying like pack light it is such a heavy burden a lifelong celibacy call that you didn't even necessarily want but you just have to do it because you were made to be attracted to different you're the same sex as you like what is heterosexual people that take a a a oath of celibacy and other you know other denominations, the Orthodox monks, that, 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 that. So it's not like this would be the only group of people in history, but there are other people throughout history and in church today that take celibacy oaths. Yeah, but it's the only group of people in our faith practice that are forced into that. It's not a decision. Like you, we can say we're letting you have a decision, but in the Bible, even Paul describes celibacy as a gift, but it's also a choice. It's not a mandate. We are mandating uh, LGBTQ people into celibacy. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm mandating anybody. I think what you said earlier was beautiful in that, Hey, you know, everybody's welcome, a part of your community. And I think that's amazing. Um, I would say that I think there's hypocrisy from the LGBTQ community where, where everything is, everything is tolerant except a Jackie Hill Perry and she's a bigot. I think that's very hypocritical or, well, yeah. Or, or everything is non-binary, and you got You get to choose your own identity, and every and, and, and sexual orientation is fluid, and gender is fluid. And all these things are fluid, but yet someone that was gay and becomes heterosexual and says, "Hey, that wasn't beneficial to me." Now I'm a straight mother, artist, author who loves Jesus and loves my husband. They're a bigot. I think that's extremely. It's like tolerance is cool until until somebody puts puts up a position that's not congruent with that position, and then they're instantly otherized, right? And I and I and this happens with uh, side B uh, LGBT and and folks like Jackie Hill Perry. And I don't I don't think that's fair, but I don't seldom is that hypocrisy called out or exposed. Yeah, 
No, that's absolutely, I agree with that completely. I think that we need to be consistent with what we're saying. If we're going to love people, we have to consistently love people. And if we accept people and give grace and and listen to people when they say, God told me this, or I'm living in peace as, you know, in this heterosexual relationship, as Jackie says, then Yes, we absolutely have to grant that that person is telling their truth. Yeah, and and, and, and I think you're totally right. I think um, I think I I accept. I'm with you. Accept people, love people. I have the LGBTQ people that in my life that I love, um, that that are that I consider friends, that I go out and I hang out with. And I think the maybe the where me and you would disagree is that uh, I would say, hey, I love you, um, and I'm your friend, and I'm in your corner. This right here, I'm not going to affirm because my buddy, my buddies, I had multiple friends do this, Brenda, up who up and left their wife because they felt like it. Ah, I'm just going to divorce my wife. No justification, no moral grounds. Wife is a single mother. And they just decided to, I couldn't affirm that either. And I actually ended up losing close friendships because I said, bro, you're a coward. That is not okay. You don't get to justify that. Your wife doesn't have any skills because she's been a mother for the past five years and you're literally just going to up and leave, right? So in the same way I don't affirm that, I would, I would, I would, you know, or whoever, any name, my mother's a, a, you know, an alcoholic. I love my mother dearly, but I don't affirm that in her. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm not there for her. That doesn't mean I'm not present in her life. That doesn't mean I'm not with her. That doesn't mean I won't do anything. She fell in a, Brenda, my mom fell and broke her shoulder this year. And so I've been going over there every single day and she broke her shoulder because she has two bad hips that she was drunk. And because she didn't want to get her hips fixed, she fell and had her terrible break on her shoulder. Right. And all of this is like, yo, like, what are you doing? You should have gotten this fixed 10 years ago. My mom, she's like 58. Um, I love her. I love her dearly. I'm there for her no matter what I'm in her life. Uh, I'm, I, but I'm not going to affirm that in her. I'm not going to say, yay, you're, you have a drinking problem, right? And maybe, maybe you think that's intolerant or that, or that makes me a bigot to acknowledge a, a biblical sex ethic. But I would say, well, that's, that's kind of a bummer for someone to not tolerate that position because it's not like I'm elevating one over the other. And by the way, this is not something I talk about on my channel. I'm very strong on Christians should be known by the things we're for, not by the things we're against. Um, but I do think if we're looking at, again, falling short of the standard of God, drunkenness, sexual immorality, hatred, all of it, it's, you know, all of it. Um, and, and so that's probably where me and you would probably disagree and say, well, based on your view of scripture and, and my you know view of scripture, we'd say, yeah, we disagree on, on this specific thing. I don't know if you want to chime in or if you had a question for me. No, yeah. The, the two things that came up for me is I, I know that Jackie Hill Perry, and she has even, I believe, said this herself, that she doesn't like that she's propped up as like, oh, here's the example. Oh, look, here's a one person that was successfully doing this. So look. She's, the- she's like the main celebrity, Christian celebrity. I'm, I'm sure there's others. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't think that's fair either because she is doing something that is profoundly difficult. And like I said, upwards of 99% of people are not able to achieve the same, what I might argue is just self constraint and self control versus an actual change of of who fundamentally is. And I don't know because I haven't spoken to her, but I have listened to interviews and I have so much grace and love for her, but like, 
maybe she's just an impeccably self-controlled person and that is not necessarily is it possible that God changed her heart though I know that make I know that question can come off whack but is it possible that God did a work yeah no if she wants to to tell me that great like I said like I I grant someone's own personal spiritual experience to be true if they're telling me that it's true mm-hmm. but at the same time like it's it's an anomaly from what I've seen and so many people quote fail at, at forcing themselves into heterosexual relationships or staying celibate for their whole lives, which again, I said has become a mandate instead of a blessing or even a curse. And, and I just don't think that's right. And then, um, the other thing that I was going to say was, once I'm trying to think of the last thing you just said, um, I don't remember. I lost. It's all my good. Thought. You're good. But I think one thing I wanted to ask you before we end is just like, and you don't have to go into crazy detail, but I think again we're just talking about gray, which is I would say like the world we're living in. So if you and your wife, and I see this so many times, it's like people are brought up in this purity culture, modesty culture, this anti-LGBTQ culture, and then when the fruit comes up and it's rotten or there's a problem with it, then we have to counsel those people through that rotten fruit and try to help them through all of this sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So I'm just like curious from your experience, if you're willing to share, like what kind of things you had to work through? Because for Mm -hmm. me, I'm not trying to be out here saying, do whatever you want. I'm out here saying what we are doing in all of these cases is not working Mm -hmm. and we have so much proof that it's not working so you know like how can we change that to make it actually healthy and like i said that's why i'm doing that's why i'm a sex positive christian that's why i define myself that way because it leaves room for those grays and those questions and those Mm -hmm. those discoveries of your sexuality um oh and I am anti-porn for the most okay. part. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, it's, again, everything goes back to harm. Like sin is causing harm. Mm. So if someone is being harmed in a situation, there's a problem there. And that is where, where I'll push back too on you saying you wouldn't affirm a gay lifestyle just as you wouldn't affirm your friend ditching his wife. Mm. I'm like, well, in one case, there's harm. In another case, there's not. I don't know why that's such an inconsistency. I don't, I don't see Jesus there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I think that's a fair pushback. I think, uh, again, I would have to defer back to some of the, uh, I don't, I don't know enough, but again, if we're looking at how is the suicide rate in countries that are affirming, how's the domestic violence rate in countries that are affirming, I don't know if there is or isn't harm. So I'm not going to ignorantly speak. And I do need to brush up on those studies, um, in terms of those specific surveys in those countries, uh, in terms of me and my wife, uh, there's, there's a lot that I wish people would have told me. And I ended up being the guy to tell my friends who then went, you know, got married after me, uh, just honestly, just patience, just like physical patience, um, just patience because physically, you know, intercourse was difficult for a while 
for a long time. So patience, I came from a ton of sexual trauma. I got exposed to pornography at five. I'd been molested as a kid, grew up with a confused sexual identity, um, vi- like a lot of stuff that I, you know, subsequently went to therapy for. Um, and then was also, you know, promiscuous right before coming to Christ. And not promiscuous as a multiple partner, just like having a lot of sex before I, I, I became like surrendered my life to Jesus. And, um, so one patience and, uh, and, and, and not thinking that this was going to be the magic bullet that was going to solve all of my sexual deviancy and my sexual sin. Like, yeah. Cause I was just telling people, I want to get married and have sex. And it was like, yeah. And then it took wow. years to get, uh, to have a, you know, a healthy sex life. Um, so I think that physically, and then I would also say, um, I will say that after my wife had my son who's six, Physically, it became much easier, right? And I don't know if that's the autonomy of the vagina being stretched out, you know, because of a child coming through there <laughs> or what exactly. But after the fact, it definitely became easier. But it, but, but to your point, no one told me it was going to take a ton of work. No one told me it was going to require a ton of patience. No one told me, hey, dummy, get your house in order. Stop looking at porn. Stop doing these things ahead of time because uh, this isn't the magic bullet that you think it is. It's just going to be like, yay, now you're married and all your sexual issues are solved because you have some, right? So, I ended up, you know, pulling my friends to the side on their wedding nights and being like, hey, check this out. This isn't what you think it's going to be the first time, especially if she's a virgin or she hasn't had uh, sex in a long time. This is this is going to require work. There's going to require effort. You got to be super patient. Um, And we've had other people call my wife on their wedding night, you know, freaking out because they couldn't even do the act of intercourse. Right. So um, it's tough. It's tough. So I'm with you there. Um, you spoke a lot about body autonomy. You, you, uh, will end, uh, my last question, um, in terms of abortion, you said I'm, we may have miscategorized your view on abortion. Um, <laughs> no. and, and this will be the fun one to end with. So obviously, I believe, you know, uh, life starts at conception. Um, I, I was recently just looking up like the morning after pill and, and, and you know, different stuff like that. Me and my wife, uh, we do barrier methods when we're not trying to have kids and the rhythm method, more or less. Um, and, and we only have one son. So... Uh, what is your actual view of abortion? Because I think me and you would agree that there's hypocrisy from the pro-life community um, in terms of being or being or at least appearing pro-birth and not pro-life, pro-life womb to the tomb. And I pushed back on some of this with, um, you know, Paul and Morgan and Marcus Rogers and multiple people. Right. And so uh, what what is your actual view on abortion? When do you think life starts? When are you like 100 percent abortion is not OK unless the mother's going to die? Like where do, like how do you view all of that? Because I think that's a bit confusing and you know by all means do clarify <laughs> i just love they're asking this because i'm like shoot i believe in five minutes well cool you got five minutes brenda <laughs> um the most concise way i can put it and trust me i bang my head against a wall because i can't believe that no one understands what i'm saying <laughs> so mind-numbing to me so basically I currently have a stance and I might change this in the future where I am not going to discuss my morality on the subject of abortion. I do believe that life starts at conception or not life. I believe that the spirit starts at conception because I have been pregnant and I I felt that inside of me. I felt Mm. a presence Mm. and I cannot be talked out of that. 
That said, the reason I don't discuss the morality of abortion is because I watch us go around in circles constantly discussing whether or not it's right or wrong, moral or moral. That to me is just getting us nowhere because the real issue is that the big misunderstanding is that pro-choice people, and I identify as pro-choice, are not pro-abortion, don't love killing babies, aren't super into it or happy about it, the opposite. Abortion probably breaks my heart more than almost any other thing. And that's actually not even true because I've learned about so many heartbreaking things just this year. You know, the death penalty breaks my heart and all the nuance of that. Like death and destruction is always gonna break my heart in every way. And abortion is one of those things because it does cause harm. I would categorize it in the sin category because I consider sin anything that that does Mm. harm. Mm. That is not to say whether or not, you know, morality, whatever, what we are talking about is then how do we prevent abortion? Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm pro-choice and I vote that way and I'm on that side is because way, way too often, and I'm working on it with people, pro-life people will just show a sonogram to Mm. guilt someone into keeping a baby and then they don't do anything after that when i got pregnant i had health insurance and it was going to cost me between six thousand dollars and one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to have a baby the fact that people that are quote in the pro-life camp on the republican side are anti um affordable health care yeah I'm just like, how can you be so inconsistent? So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the inconsistencies. What prevents abortion? Comprehensive sex education, which is not mandated in our entire nation. Texas, Alabama, Mississippi have some of the highest rates of abortion and teen pregnancy. And they're all like abstinence only, whatever states about sex education. Mm. California has comprehensive sex education. We have one of the lowest numbers of uh, unwanted pregnancy and abortion. So comprehensive sex education. If you're removing these clinics, like Mike Pence is acting like he's done a grandiose, beautiful thing by shutting down Planned Parenthoods. No, because again, that's a place where women are getting free birth control, free education that is not accessible in the places where they live. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep having resources for people to help them not get pregnant in the first place, Mm -hmm. the education to not get pregnant in the first place, Mm -hmm. and then resources in our nation. uh, This universal health care, I can think of nothing more Christ-like than universal health care. I don't understand the pushback from that because for me, I'm like, how do we as Christians or non-Christians, whoever, remove obstacles from a woman saying no? If you don't want a woman to say no, if you want her to say yes to a baby, why are we out here with a million fences in front of her? My first obstacle was a $120,000 bill. Mm. The only reason that I didn't owe that is because I was modeling at the time and I got fired. So I was able to get on Medi-Cal and not everyone has that privilege either. Mm. So that helped the yes. And you know, after, in the aftermath, there's no education for my child. Like he can go to a public school, but it depends on what neighborhood I'm in, whether or not it's good. We don't have, you know, so many resources that are not available to women that are struggling, that are single, 
like you said, I am definitely understanding why the family unit is so important. This is essentially why a lot of pro-lifers or Ben Shapiro yap about like the family unit needs to stay together and that's the problem. And it's like, yes, that definitely is a part of the problem. Male accountability, men understanding how to get women pregnant and how to not get women pregnant. Like, all of it comes down to resource and education. And until we as a full-on society decide no matter what side of the aisle you're on, we are advocating for these preventative measures, yeah. we are going to go in circles forever. I'm about prevent about prevention. Yep. And that's what it is for me. Yeah. The, more, the less we have it, the less, like the more happy that I am. Yeah. And there's a study that came out that said 75% of people are anti the act of an abortion. 75% of Americans are anti. So when you say, hey, pro-choice doesn't mean pro-abortion, that people can't even comprehend that. And I, yeah. some Christian, some, some pro-choice Christian, which I know is like, ah, but as you guys are here in my comments, they would say, uh, unnecessary, not illegal. How can we make it unnecessary, not illegal? And if you look at the policies, policies presented by uh, the Republicans, limiting health care, limiting sex ed, right? Uh, it, it It is not pragmatic when you look at historic abortions low, abortion lows, they were hit under Obama, right? What, why? He had a plan for sex ed. He had a plan for uh, health care. He had a plan for all these things. So I think we would agree there. I thank you for making it clear that you do think it's a sin. Um, I would, I, is there a point, is there a point for you where you think at 10 weeks or 12 weeks or 20 weeks, it should be illegal. Yes, we got to do the preventative work. And I'm totally with you there, Brenda. Um, but is there a point where you would say, I would agree with the pro-life position at making it illegal at 20 weeks unless the woman's definitely going to die or, or something like that, right? Is there is there a cutoff? Because this is never an answer I can get from pro-choice people. Oh, I mean, yeah, I absolutely do. And it's funny that you haven't been able to get that direct answer because... Again, statistically, I think it's something upwards of like 80% or more that say there should be a cutoff at some point. Like, so What's, many. What, of, what would the cutoff be for you? I mean, I would like, the thing is, I would love to say 12 weeks. And then the reason sometimes that you have to extend that to 20 is because women will have to try, travel miles, cross state lines to get access. And that would push up the date. Like, and some of these like most tragic cases are anomalies. They're not always happening. But there was a case in Alabama that my friend Grace uh, talked about on her show State of Grace with Refinery 21, where she interviewed this girl whose baby had a medical condition where she was 100% guaranteed to die in an mm. excruciating manner. Mm. She was a product of incest. And the girl wanted to have an abortion, but she couldn't cross state lines in time. Alabama has no access, no education, no protection, all of these terrible things. She had that baby and the baby died after less than a year in an excruciating manner. The whole entire process for that young woman was nothing but pain, obviously. And I'm not out here saying how she should have handled it or yeah. what she should have done, but 
I, again, what you were talking about, like Switzerland, Netherlands, those places, they have abortion fully legalized, but only up to 12 weeks. Mm. In America, we have up to 20. So even there, they've cut it down to 12. But again, I think they could only do that because they have the access, they have the education, and you are able to make a decision in that time frame where women here don't even have that luxury because it's it's so much more difficult to access it than that yeah yeah and i said this on a video i did responding to victor marx who came out a bunch of my friends because they congratulated biden for winning the presidency and he said how can you support a pro third trimester president and and i made a video and in response and i was like first of all he's not a third trimester supporting president second of all what if we as christians were known as the people that did everything you just talked about. But more specifically, there was multiple programs. I think the pro-life position is also a PR position. They just dropped the ball on being known by, hey, if you want to have a baby, we'll take care of you, we'll feed you, we'll give you, we'll shelter you. If there was more of that, I think that would be a better, we should be known by that, in my opinion. So, I, I, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's, yeah, I think, yeah, I think we agree more or less are there. Well, Brenda, thank you so much. I know you got to go. Um, I greatly appreciate you doing this. Hopefully this wasn't too bad, and I would love to talk to you some other time. Um, and I'm sure we'll continue conversation through DMs and all that kind of stuff. I'll try to dig up some information for you. Um, you've been extremely gracious um, and polite and awesome, so thank you. Uh, obviously, we disagree on a handful of things. Uh, you, you know, We agree on the literal resurrection. We believe Jesus is God. We believe the Bible is inspired the nuance of that. And, um, yeah, thank you. I don't, I don't really know what else to say, but just thank you. You've been amazing. You got any final words to, uh, all the folks watching? Um, I think my final word is like, you, you are an amazing advocate for exactly what I think it's all about, which is getting into these nuanced, complicated conversations with fellow believers, even having the opportunity to sit down with you and being taken to task. Like, you know, this has been a three-year journey of research for me. So you talking about LGBTQ Bible verses, I'm like, oh, I know I debunked this in the past and I don't even remember. So it's like even getting taken to task again in a fresh way is great. Like, and also it gives such an opportunity for me growing and expanding, hopefully you growing and expanding in any way. And we're so remiss to just make enemies of each other. Yes. So, Thank yes. you so much for having me here and thank you for creating a safe space for people to have these really necessary conversations. And I frankly don't care if you believe you being the collective, whoever's watching, mm -hmm. believe everything that I say. I think this faith should be your own and you should make it your own, Amen. not according to your wishy-washy feelings, but for real, like set yourself on that path. And that's the path I'm on. I can tell you're on that same path. So it's great to meet you here on the journey. Awesome. Thank you, Brenda. Guys, if you watch this and this made you feel a way or threatened you, uh, it shouldn't have. Uh, Brenda's presenting different ideas. Uh, this, if anything, conversations like this reaffirm my views. It gives me stuff to think about, gives me research to do. But I do not feel threatened having these conversations. And neither should you. Like, you really shouldn't. Um, Send Brenda some love. Give her an encouraging comment on Instagram. Um, again, love on her. Uh, she's awesome. She's super gracious, kind, sweet. Um, give this video a like. And um, yeah, maybe we'll do this again sometime. So thank you guys, everybody that hung on. This was an extremely long conversation. I appreciate all you guys. Peace. <laughs>